Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Film Fives, the podcast with me, Russell Guyver, my mate Phil Newman. Hello, Phil. Good evening. Hello. <laughs> and we are here again to count down our top fives on a subject to do with film. And it's this week that we turn our attentions back to animated studios. We've done Pixar in the past, and we thought we'd go to the other side of the world, a little bit more Far Eastern, to be precise. Um, and it is our turn to go with Studio Ghibli. Um, yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm, I'm, is it Ghibli or Gib- Ghibli? Yeah, Because you're the um, Japanese expert, and I really am not, and I'm going to be yes. pronouncing so <laughs> many things wrong tonight. <laughs> And apologies if I offend I'm happy to correct you whenever necessary. Yeah, <laughs> okay. It is Ghibli. It's, my wife's Japanese, as some people may know, others won't. Um, she said it's Ghibli. It isn't actually a Japanese word. It's kind of a made-up word. It's it, sort of like pseudo-French. It comes from actually. the Libyan Arabic word for hot desert wind. Oh, is that what it is? Oh, okay. Yeah, apparently, well, the she... idea being that they were going to blow a new wind through the anime industry, and um, that's what they did. Yeah, there we go then. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, so that means that um, it may be, I may be wrong, but, or that she may be wrong, but that's how it's kind of referred to all over Japan, to be honest. So I think they've appropriated it to their own pronunciation anyway. Seeing as it's that, their concept, we have to yeah. go with that, don't we, anyway? <laughs> so that's that's the first bit of clarity sorted. Um, this is, of course, the foremost Japanese animation studio um, for anyone that's into animation, they'll probably know what this is all about anyway. For those that aren't, we can explain a bit more detail because I know there's a number of friends are going to be listening in and some of them have absolutely no idea about it whatsoever. Or if they've heard of one or two films, that's about as far as it goes. So it looks like, Phil, you've been up to your usual research. I've done a little bit of little bit of reading up. Yeah. So um, founded back in 1985 by uh, the directors Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata, along with the producer to Toshio Suzuki. Um, both Miyazaki and Takahata had long careers in Japanese film and TV animation and worked together on quite a few films in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, Miyazaki was very much Takahata's protege. I think it was Pakusan he used to call him, and he looked up to him in kind of every every way, and he was a massive influence on him. Um, but they had a kind of successful film in 1984 with Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which Suzuki was a producer on, and they decided to kind of club together and build their own studio. They mainly produced films by Miyazaki and Takahata, less so, and then there's a handful of films made by other people, including Miyazaki's uh, son, Goro. Um, in 1996, they formed a partnership with Disney to be who would then be the sole distributor of uh, Ghibli's films, Ghibli's films internationally, um, with Disney financing 10% of the studio's production costs. Um, and then Disney would then organise the redubbing of all the all the films in, in for the sort of Western markets. Um, I think Miyazaki is very much seen as sort of Japan's Walt Disney character. Hmm. Um, in 2005, it, it kind of re-established itself as an independent company. It had sort of various different owners before, relocated headquarters. And in 2013, Miyazaki decided to, for the first time to retire and kind of wound everything down. Um, he was into his 70s by then. Um, uh, Takahata was a few years older. He just spent eight years making a film about Princess Kaguya, which we may or may not be talking about. Um, and that was kind of Takahata's last film. Sadly, he died in 2018. And in 2017, Miyazaki unretired and is currently working on a new fantasy film called How Do You Live? But he's not rushing, so 
we will get it when we'll get it. There's no, I don't think there's any kind of deadlines or anything yeah. like that at all. He says he doesn't work as fast as he used to. He's in his 80s. When it's ready, we'll get it. Yeah. And I'm very much looking forward to it. So, yeah. um, I mean, he, we'll, we'll, we'll go into it a lot soon. He he does big themes, particularly uh, Miyazaki. There'll be lots of talk this evening, although it's what is essentially maybe seen as a children's cartoon studio. Um, we'll be going in a lot in environmentalism and the futility of war and the evils of technology and spirituality. We're going to be going in on all of that this evening, I would expect, as we kind of discuss quite a lot of the metaphors that are subtle and not so subtle in, in quite a lot of their films. I mean, speaking for myself, I'm very, very much a Miyazaki fan. Takahata, I like his work and I enjoy it, but Miyazaki is where it's at really for me, I've got to be perfectly honest. Yeah. And so he uh, will be featuring more heavily in my top five. Yeah, which is not a surprise really, but um, he, I mean, he is the he is the fulcrum of it really. His, his, his work is certainly the more predominant in terms of volume, and that's without a compromise on any kind the of box quality. office. Yeah. And the box office as well. He's the more famous name. I think he, um, he's got the wider sort of international uh, renown, I think as well. In terms of the um, retirement, it's quite amusing. When you, uh, smiling when you said that because he's in the same bracket as Ken Loach and Woody Allen, the filmmakers, and and football manager Neil Warnock, who of all claimed status quo retired. <laughs> how many how time. many farewell tours have they done? Yeah. <laughs> status quo, exactly. Yeah, they all tend to retire over and over again. Hmm. Interesting, but um, yeah. I think in the case of Miyazaki, it's a matter of. Um, yeah, I think he's 81 now, I think, so mm. it, it takes him a good five or six years to make a film. You've got to be realistic about these things. Yeah. What yeah. the future kind of really holds now, I mean, in 2014, a lot of the staff, when they kind of, he sort of wound the studio down, a lot of the staff left mm. and set up their own studio called Studio Ponoc. Yeah. P-O-N-O-C is the uh, English spelling. Um, they made a great film a few years ago, very good. Ghibli-esque called Mary and the Witch's Flower. They're working they oh, yeah. a sort of second anthology film. I haven't seen that. They've got they're working on the third film now. But yeah, I mean you can you can feel um Ghibli's influence throughout everything kind of animations, particularly over the last 20 years. I'm sure that's something we'll be speaking about yeah. too. Um I've got a bio actually Miyazaki before we go into our countdowns. I think I'll probably like to add to this as well. As I mentioned, my wife's Japanese and she knows a lot about the stuff prior to Ghibli, which is worthy of mention as well uh, in terms of Mia, yeah. Mia's canon. Um, she grew up watching a number of things, obviously. One of them predominantly was his early stuff. Um, oh, he's uh, one of Japan's greatest animators, obviously, that goes without saying. A number of themes you've just mentioned. Um, there's a lot of motifs, a lot of uh, archetypal characters in there. Which yeah. I'm sure he, he, he does a lot of stories about young girls uh, <laughs> and he likes aeroplanes. Yeah. Even though technology is evil, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, he has a love affair with um, with the air, with with flying. flying. Yeah, his his father was, I believe, a plane aeroplane designer, yeah. and he had his love affair with that, with with you know aviation. I think he had mixed thoughts about that because his father essentially built films that were used in built films, built <laughs> air, was responsible for building aeroplanes that were used in the Second World War, and he is yeah. staunchly. Yeah. Or as I'm sure yeah exactly so there's mixed feelings on it but um uh, in terms of bio he was born in tokyo in on january the 5th 1941 started his career in 63 as an animator at the studio toy duga studio which i think you mentioned and was subsequently involved in many of the early classic japanese animations um beginning his um or highlighting his incredible abilities you know his 
his hand hand drawings just absolutely stunning the animation is superb um and as it says on the bio a, a seemingly endless stream of movie ideas came from his proposals um, in 1971 he moved to the a pro studio with Seo takahata then to nippon animation in 73 where he was heavily involved in the world masterpiece theater tv animation series for the next five years right now this is where my other half's um upbringing came into play she was watching things from um it says in 1978 i've never seen any of this yeah, yeah he, he, in 78 um he directed his first tv series called future boy conan conan as in conan the barbarian same yeah. spelling probably they've grabbed the name from that because that conan the barbarian yeah. that. but it's it's nothing to do with that character yeah, there's, yeah. there's no muscled oaf like a uh, <laughs> prancing around it's a central again it's a young in this case boy as the protagonist um it's called um yeah future future boy conan or the the boy of the boy in future they then moved to tokyo movie shinsa in 1979 to direct his first movie which was the classic lupin the third the castle of cagliostro um in 1979 and in 1984 he released nausicaa valley of the wind um and so on and that's that's the one that's really kind of got that's his DNA. that's the first one a lot of people saw that's the first one of his i've seen yeah and it's got his dna all over it exactly. that you would see but it's not just doors. from those earlier ones it's not just that film which wasn't was pre-ghibli era but it was a, yeah a, a, clearly the same kind of characteristics but also as well as conan future boy he um he, he directed several other series as well which were all hugely popular and Anybody of a certain age in Japan will know. And there was a series based on Heidi, the classic. Um, yeah, that was Takahata as well, wasn't it? I think oh, that's right. Yeah. That said um, that that was kind of Takahata's masterpiece. Yeah. I, wa- I watched a, a documentary film called Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, which was hmm. a film during 2012, 2013, where, yeah, yeah they're, they're kind of Takahata's finishing off the Princess Kagi, uh, Miyazaki's finishing off the wind rises and the camera's just sort of following Miyazaki around them. They also, between them, covered Anne of Green Gables and uh, the adventures of Tom Sawyer um, and Lupin, the mentioned the film, um, this was Miyazaki stuff going back to his thing. That was a, a hugely prolific TV series as well before it was a film. Apparently it was on every night of the week when it was being oh, broadcast. Okay. I don't know how many episodes there are. She doesn't really know, but there's. Um, I think there's a, a large number of them. Never been able to get access to any of that. I don't know if any of these... It's probably never been, never been translated, I yeah. suppose. There's but been no call for it. Lupin the Third, Castle of Cagliostro, Cagliostro. Yeah, that is available. Well, that is available, yeah. yeah. But, but the rest of it isn't particularly. So it's worth mentioning that. that there's, it comes with a rich heritage already, but it's really in the Studio Ghibli era that, um, well, both of those animators come really into the fore. And I would say there's probably a good eight or nine of these films, which are stunning animation, some really interesting stories in a lot of cases, great scores, um, and just just really interesting characters and concepts. Um, you've got this almost kind of um, steampunk, kind of post-industrial, kind of futuristic kind of thing going on. Yeah. Um, as you said, there's the anti-war messages, there's eco messages in there. There's you've a got lot these of that. Very young uh, child protagonists in pretty much all of the stories, actually. Yeah, normally female, yeah. And then you've got you've got a lot of buffoonish male characters. You get craggy, grannyish characters who are either 
sages or yeah. old witches or sinister witches or in in the case of um castle in the sky and not quite so old more active leader of a pirate gang yes. <laughs> still with a craggy face and um th- th- those sort of characters keep repeating you also get these again going back to this industrial this notion of in- industrial the stuff with loads of steam pumping out here there and everywhere and lots of cranking and kind of bolted panelling on the sides of silvery grey um, machinery and, and yeah. ships and whatever else. You've got these kind of these hugely bushy, moustached engineers who seem to virtually <laughs> live in the engine room. They yeah. see them outside of it. That's happened in a number of um, the films. I think Howl's Moving Castle. Castle There's the, the guy guy. spirited away. There's the, the guy with the boy there, yeah. Exactly. Maybe with an assistant, maybe not. And there's, 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 also, yeah. Yeah. And there's always comedy running through them as well. There's some really yeah. funny laugh out loud moments in a large number of the films, I would say. Um, most particularly, um, I would say, with Miyazaki stuff. Um, and, well, actually, no, I think probably in both cases, actually. Yeah. 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 So, so brilliant stuff. Um, I was just going to say, um, in addition to animation, Miyazaki also draw, draws manga. His major work was the Nausicaa manga series, an epic tale he worked on intermittently from 1982 to 1984 while he was busy making animated films at the same time. So manga as in the magazines, obviously. Yes. Um, uh, another manga called Hikute Jidai was later evolved into his 1992 film, Porco Rosso, uh, which is one of the Studio Ghibli films for, um, from 1992 um so he's kind of redeveloped some of he's got own. a new book coming out this month has he i yeah i actually saw it um, in in uh in a uh shop last weekend it's called shuna's journey i think that's how we pronounce it yeah it's a yeah. kind of animated sort of no, a novella yeah yeah okay. I, I saw her in a shop and thought oh i might have to buy that for my kids so i can read it and then um, <laughs> i had a look to see for how much it was on amazon and it's not out for another month <laughs> oh, okay that's a bit awkward is this the um homer simpson buying a bowling ball with his own name on it kind of yeah definitely <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm guilty <laughs> of that quite kid. frequently yeah <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> excellent well we're on to our fives then we're going to count down certainly the first couple maybe the first three in part um part one of this episode um as as is custom we alternate who starts the alternating process countdown process and i think it's your start to um, it is first things first what beer are we on well yeah let's get uh, let's get into the important stuff yeah so we are we have here scaffell new england ipa from the northern monk brewery and, um, oh, very nice. Nice, I've, yeah. I've had a lot of, I've had this case in all the mug beers recently, but it didn't have that one in it. Yeah, it's got a, oh, a very tasty, nice. uh, tasty little number. Um, Heskett Newmarket says here. Hmm. Excellent. Uh, I'm on the brew dog at the moment in Tesco's for 15 uh-huh. quid. They do the 12 beers of Christmas, which is a pretty good deal, to be honest. So I'm on the Planet Pale Ale, the Easy Pale Ale. Oh, yeah. It's very pleasant. And I had a couple of glasses of wine with dinner earlier, so I'm hoping it won't be... <laughs> Too dribbly as this goes on. Hopefully you'll still be making some sort of coherent sense as time goes yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And I'm even more mispronouncing Japanese names. <laughs> right, so number five for myself. Um, yeah. 2008, I'm going for Ponyo. Oh, well, can I say immediately at this point, you may have saved the day 
because I can say Ponyo didn't make my top five. My mate James that's going to be listening to this is a huge uh, Studio Ghibli fan, and I think his other half as well, um, said that I'm not no longer invited to stay with them in a couple of weekends when I'm due to go if I don't have them in the top five. Uh, I don't, um, but um, you've got Ponyo in, so you, apparently you're invited to stay yeah. instead. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, anyway, go on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when, when we talk, we, we normally sort of start with a kind of couple of sentences on the description of the kind of the fit, the film, the kind of the pitch, and it's some, quite a lot of these sound really strange when you, when you say them out loud. <laughs> so here we go. So a five-year-old boy called Suzuki develops a relationship with Ponyo, a young goldfish princess who longs to become a human after falling in love with him. Uh, Brunhilde is the name of the goldfish princess. It's a bit sort of a bit based on um, Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. And this is, I mean, this is a gorgeous, beautiful film. Um, I absolutely love it. It's a critical and commercial smash. This is um, very much a kind of a younger children's film. So this was the first Ghibli film that I showed my kids when they were very small and got them kind of addicted to it. And I think if you want a kind of easy entry into Ghibli films, this is quite a good place to start. It does have kind of some of that weirdness that they do have in a lot of the other films, but it's a bit more linear and that doesn't have quite so much of some of the strange humour that you might, well, not strange, but to to to, to kind of our Western sensibilities anyway, uh, bizarre humour that kind of pops up in some of the other films. I think it's a kind of great way. It's by far their kiddiest film. They're, they do have the environmentalist sort of messages are in it, but they're not quite as sort of painted in big letters in this as they are in some of the other films. It's just a beautiful, beautiful fairy tale, really, and it looks absolutely gorgeous it's visually stunning and it's one of those things that kids can watch it and just love it and adults can watch it and pick up on a few of the other bits that are going on yeah excellent um and yeah i mean just in terms of storyline what what particularly goes on that just remind us i can't can't, it's a while since i've seen it actually yes so yeah as as i just said (laughs) it's a sorry it's about a five-year-old boy who develops a relationship with a goldfish princess called (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I think goldfish is a weird one because apparently in Japan this seems to be. I've just yeah. told literally just before we started this podcast that um, that's uh, when you have artificial goldfish in, yeah. uh, for example, in bathtubs. Um, that's yeah. the equivalent of ducks that we have. Oh, okay, they have that kind of relationship with goldfish. Oh, okay. I don't know if that plays into how they've yeah that as the animal animated um, protagonist of this story. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> but it's it's yeah it is a proper old school fairy tale um it yeah. looks beautiful they'd actually shut their um computer graphics section at ghibli at this particular time so it's all done traditionally the art director katsuya kondo it was all hand-drawn animation solid and simple lines and it, it's absolutely stunning to look at so yeah. um miyazaki um, he wrote and directed this he spent some time in and apologies again for my pronunciation Tomonura, which is a seaside town in the Setanaike National Park and so that's what kind of gave him the setting while he was there and um, while he, he, while sort of holidaying a bit there he read the complete works of a um, Japanese author Natsumi Saseki who died in 1916 um, and he wrote a novel called The Gate about a character named Suzuki Suzuki, who okay. lived at the bottom of a cliff, and I think Miyazaki basically sort of stole ideas and settings from that and added the can- the character Ponyo Ponyo to it. 
yeah okay interesting um yeah yeah it's a good film it's it's entertaining it is mainly aimed at younger kids isn't it more probably than yeah. a lot of the other ones are more exclusively than a lot of the other ones are yeah yeah it, all of these it, films could be enjoyed enjoyed by everyone but that one's kind of more tailored um in fact one or two others i'll mention maybe along the way as it well. does it, it does have that kind of miyazaki's sort of um humanity's relationship between nature and technology and our relationship the relationship with the environment and what we're doing to it that comes up in all of his films and there is you know a lot about the ocean uh, and what happens there and our influence over it and its influence over us um but yeah it, it's 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 just it's just great it's a kind of sunday afternoon sit down with the kids put it on and everyone will enjoy it yeah Excellent. Okay, well, first of my five, and what I'll say, by the way, before I get into that is, for me, as much as I love all of the films, and I probably love six, seven, eight, nine of them. I've got, I've got a top four that is pretty nailed on yeah, yeah. I, I, I love Ponyo but my top four I think it, it's like yeah. when we did Billy Wilder my top four were the it's a matter of just order. order and then there were the other ones yeah, yeah. for me the same it's a bit like that with Hitchcock as well yeah exactly yeah. the same the, in my case the same applies as you, for you but for the whole of the five so I had my five pretty much set I watched everything again just to get an update on on all of the ones that I've got any kind of inkling might be anywhere near the top five. Watch them all again, and I have remained with the same five after having done so. Um, there's there's three, four other films which I think are exceptional and are unlucky to miss out just because they're very good. But yeah. the five that I'm going for, quite honestly, to an extent, could be in any order, really. Yeah. And my well, number one is a nailed on number one, but my two, three, and four. Yeah, one, could, yeah, yeah. depending on what day you ask me. Could yeah, exactly. That's it, yeah. My wife, as, as I said, as she has got the same five as me. She didn't put them in any order. She said, that's like choosing which of your kids you prefer. <laughs> so <laughs> on that basis, so it's probably something you've made. Probably... I've got my wife's top five as well, and the four of hers are the same as mine. Ah, there we go. Um, well, don't tell me that uh, what those are yet then. Obviously. And I've got my eldest daughter, who's 16, um, yeah I've got her top five as well and there's three of those okay my top we'll five. run through all those at the end but just to say that my wife's five are the same as mine I did obviously compel for this podcast I did have to put them in some kind of yeah. order, but it was really um a labor to do so and so these could be in any order but what I've done is I've gone for a number five the seminal classic my neighbor Totoro which oh, is yeah. which is now Totoro for anyone that hasn't seen any of this stuff um, you mentioned... <laughs> you do the whole soundtrack Phil go for it <laughs> you had enough wine and beer to do that <laughs> not quite yet give it um, another half an hour you, you mentioned Disney earlier and, and Ghibli for Japan uh, is, is the same as Disney for America obviously the timeline it is Totoro but... is basically the Japanese Winnie the Pooh for yeah or, or Mickey Mouse it's, probably, yeah, yeah. probably Winnie the Pooh in terms of the cuddly character type of merchandisable but, equivalent um mickey mouse in terms of the iconic element the actual the overall iconic element he's that synonymous with um the um with the the studio as mickey mouse is or or winnie the pooh with disney the only difference being of course that winnie the pooh is pretty epic in its own right outside of the animation but anyway anyway so my neighbor totoro which is um one of a number of classics from the 80s this one's from 1988 um, it comes in a, a nice, cosy one minute. Uh, sorry, not one minute. That would be, be a very okay. short film. Sorry, one hour and twenty six minutes. So again, it is tailored towards younger kids. Um, it was so. Uh, it was originally only going to be an hour long. 
Um, oh, so, so yeah. Hmm. Um, so from what I can gather, and then um, they kind of sort of thought thinking about the father story and adding kind of other bits to it to kind of uh, yeah. I mean, it's still what is it, eighty six minutes or something like that. But um, yeah, yeah. and it, it, where, where, where once they kind of put in the reason for moving house and the father's occupation and all of that, it, yeah. it kind of got a bit longer. But yeah, yeah, I think it was it was originally supposed to be yeah quite a concise film. Yeah. But this, this is one of the Miyazaki films. It's written by him yeah. as well. Just to quickly go over the cast for the sake of it anyway, but in terms of the Japanese cast, Totoro, for what it's worth, who makes, basically makes noises, yeah. <laughs> is um, voice talented uh, Hitoshi Kagaki. Um, and it's uh, Nariko Hidata as Satsuki, which is one of the girls. Chika Sakamoto as May, the other girl. Um, yeah. So that's the main cast members. Um, it's Again, it's got this central protagonist being young girls. It's about two young sisters, 10-year-old Satsuki and four-year-old Mei, who are brought by their father to live in a country cottage so they can be near the hospital where their mother is being treated for some unspecified disease. There's a little bit of sort of menace in the notion that you're not quite sure how ill she is, actually. There yeah, is a, no. a genuine threat. This might be something more serious than we're realising, but um, not necessarily the case, as it turns out. Anyway, it says, although their father is loving, parental supervision of the two girls is minimal. Um, he's a professor. He, do, he does one day a week in Tokyo and the rest of the time they're living yeah. in this new countryside location. Um, from the outset, it is obvious that the children, uh, oh, sorry, it's obvious to the children that there is something magical about their new home. Um, May one day spots a little furry creature trundling through the unkempt garden. Following it, and a medium-sized version that joins it, May eventually falls into a hole in a huge camphor tree. Camphor trees uh, are repeated themes, by the way, in yeah. this um, stuff as well. And it discovers a gigantic version of the creatures that she had been pursuing. The two become friends, soon three, as Satsuki otherwise becoming uh, becomes acquainted with the, the creature. Uh, sorry, likewise, um, called Totoro, strictly speaking, Big Totoro, if we're being exact. Yes, the other yes. two also being Totoros. Um, I think so the word Totoro is a mispronunciation of troll by May, I think. That's what yes, it, it that's right. She, she's got a children's um, storybook, which she's, she has read to her and and um, yeah, she thinks it's a, uh, it's a it's a real life manifestation of the character from the books. Yes. So she appropriates it both in terms of it's not quite the same creature, but she kind of thinks it is. It's troll-like, I suppose, yeah. in a cuddly way. But also, yeah, she... Very, very, very cuddly and cute troll, but yeah. Yeah, and she misappropriates the um, the name slightly, as you said. Um, so that, that's that, how it pans out. Um, as you said, it's um, word-meaning troll. It's um, I think it's a slightly different wording but it's basically the same word for troll yeah and thereafter the two girls have adventures with their giant friend flying on a spinning top playing um ocaninas with him on the topmost branch of the camphor tree um chanting seeds into prodigious and near instantaneous growth um journeying in a cat bus across between yeah. a cat and a bus <laughs> a grinning um nighttime traveling bus um and so on. Finally, after the cat bus takes them, takes them to visit their mother in the hospital so that they can reassure themselves her condition is not as grave as feared, Totoro um, seems to feel that his job with them is done, just like all the adults. They can no longer see him, although, of course, they will always know he is somewhere in the forest watching out for them. So that's, that's the overall concept. I mean, it doesn't really have a plot. It's two girls making yeah. a friend in it, the forest. And it's a situation more than a... More yeah. than the story that you'll get in some of the other films. But, you know, it's no less enchanting for that, is it? 
you could you could see how it could be a, a one hour film, but I think it works well as an hour twenty six. Um, yeah, the reason I put it at number five again, it could have been in any order, but the reason I did that was just because actually what you've just said, I think it's maybe more accessible to younger audiences for some people. I think I think it's accessible to everyone, but also it's yeah, the, the narrative isn't quite so detailed, and in the end, I maybe look for things that add just all those extra elements in them when I, I went in terms of the ranking order. Um, the cat boss is brilliant. That is also boss, yeah. apparently, apparently there's some ancient Japanese kind of belief that old cats can shape shift, and that's where it comes from. Yeah, exactly. And I so, think if you, if you go to the Ghibli Museum that they have in Japan, they've got a cat bus there. I think I'd love to go there. I have been, and they do indeed. Yeah. Yes, I'm very <laughs> and jealous. And it's a very tempting merchandise, which most of which we had to resist buying because of the fact that it simply wouldn't have been transportable. There was too yeah. much stuff there. We got a few smaller items when we went there, um, which is in Tokyo, by the way. Um, but anyway, the um, yeah, these characters, as, as alluded to in that sort of description there, um, can only be seen by the kids when they're believing when it kind of you know they, they yeah. match up their sensibilities with these characters so you've got for example the tree route that she takes she goes under some bushes and goes down this sort of berooted kind of um channeled pathway through to where the main tree is and then she stumbles in tumbles down and then finds the big totoro there um it isn't always there that pa- passageway wasn't always discoverable and um, it changes yeah. So it's a little bit, there's a little bit of Alice in Wonderland about it. I do think Miyazaki has a, a strong um, passion for European, Western European um, yeah. literature, particularly in terms of children's literature, but not exclusively so. Obviously, we mentioned all the other serials that were, were made as well. Um, so I think there's a bit of Alice in Wonderland about it. There's a bit of um, just general fantastical, magical uh, elements um and the cat boss by the way is also a highly merchandised item as well oh, okay. very popular with kids um in fact i have a little cat boss um ornament thing um at home that's one of the things i did buy um it's just beautifully realized i think the way that the character it's cool in- like all of miyazaki films it's gorgeous to look at um I think as it, Katsuo Oga was the art director, and I think him and Miyazaki spent mm. a lot of time debating what colours to use. And basically, every single tree, hedge, road, whatever it is, has like an individual feeling. And I, and I think Oga, he then got a lot more work with Ghibli afterwards, where they gave him other projects that kind of played to his uh, strengths. So, I mean, originally, I think it was going to be set in 1955, and then, but Miyazaki basically says it's set in the recent past. Um, yeah. you, you don't get mobile phones or anything like that in, yeah. in Ghibli films. It's always sort of set a little while ago, but not quite now. Yeah, that's <laughs> um, it. Yeah. The score in it is great as well. That's by Joe Hisaishi, um, yes, who basically does the, he does all of Miyazaki pretty films, yeah, pretty yeah. much. Um, so in terms of the themes in Totoro, although it is a little bit more lightweight than some of the other stuff, um, explores uh, animism, which is the uh, the belief that objects, places and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence. Uh, Shintoism, which I don't know much about, but as I yeah. understand it, it's a Japanese religion that revolves around the kami, the supernatural entities believed to inhabit all things. Yes, and in Japan, generally speaking, it sits along Buddhism in terms of people's yeah. beliefs. Nobody's necessarily fully into it, the ordinary people on the street, but um, those two religions sit side by side c- compatibly. And yeah. Shintoism is the indigenous Japanese faith, and it, is, it does follow those sensibilities you just, um, you just yeah. described. So Totoro has kind of animistic traits and 
kami status because he lives in as you say a camphor tree in a shinto shrine surrounded by a shinto rope which is used for ritual purification uh, and it's referred to as the master of the forest see i've done a little bit of own work Uh, (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of things i found out over the last week that i I didn't know (laughs) about and uh, to be honest it only makes watching the films an even more interesting experience yeah especially if you then go revisit them after you've read up on it yeah definitely yeah i think so um yeah it's great great stuff um I think the, in terms of certain scenes, you, you get introduced to Totoro in two ways. The, the scene we discovered uh, where she discovers him in the tree, but there's also a scene where which, when the old elder sister gets to realise that she's not just making this up in sort of childish yeah. fantasy that actually is real, um, is when they're waiting at a bus stop. There's a lot of themes around rain in this film and umbrellas. Yeah. And Totoro's got this completely ill-suited small leaf on his head trying to protect himself from the rain it drips on his nose and then he's offered the umbrella by the one of the girls and it's kind of it's all very sweet but it's just magically realized the way they unfold that storyline and that um you know that that scene is just absolutely beautiful um the the scenes i think i find this always the case with studio ghibli films and probably most animation probably disney i'd say as well is just the darker tones just look so good really sharp yeah. and excellent so night scenes rainy scenes um scenes in the sky with flying airships with um uh, yeah, i mean camera. this film's 1988 there's no computer animation at all it's all yeah. hand-drawn yes it's all hand-drawn and it is it is if anybody's in any, under any illusion this is as good if not better than disney's hand-drawn stuff at oh the top yeah of the game i think this is sensationally good all of all of these films we're going to talk about will be like that yeah. um and yeah, I mean, my neighbour Totoro is is certainly up there for that. It could have gone higher as well. It is the iconic, it, it is the flagship character. It's the iconic figure of the studio. It's the one of the most, if not the most loved fictional character in Japanese culture. Yeah. So modern culture. I mean, it, it was widespread, widespread acclaim. Um, so Roger Ebert, he kind of said... Um, it's sort of based on experience, situation, and exploration, not on a normal, a normal films are sort of based around conflict and threat. This is just rich in human comedy, observing two remarkably convincingly lifelike little girls. It's a little sad, scary, and informative. I mean, yeah, you can't really disagree with that at all. It's no. um, Totoro has appeared in as kind of cameos in other films since, uh, in terms of other Ghibli films. Uh, well, aside as being being the logo, um, he's also in been uh, a Totoro has also appeared in Pompoko, uh, Kiki's Delivery Service, Whisper of the Heart, um, and Toy Story Three. If you look hard enough, yes, indeed. Well, I did spot that when I was watching it. I was delighted. Um, of course, with the Disney collaboration, they can do that. But it's it's nonetheless, it's great to have a nod to it. Um, in fact, but you mentioned the museum, and that's that's there in Tokyo. There's several shops, I'm sure plenty of shops around the country that sell their merchandise. They have actually, this very month as we record, November, opens um, a fun park. They've got their own Ghibli oh, okay. uh, World or whatever it's called. I don't know the exact name, which is literally just opened. Uh, you can't get tickets for another long money, apparently, no. quite a while in advance already. It's hugely popular. And it's got a, it's, it's got a gradually grown, I think, um, international audience that's grown and grown. Yeah. There's a point, I think, quite a few years ago now, maybe over a dozen years ago, when it seemed to get much greater exposure. I'm not sure if it is to do with when Disney signed up. It may have been before that, may have been afterwards, may have been... It was some point after that, I think, yeah. There's a Um, show over here as well. They're doing Totoro as a stage show. It Um, is. Yeah, it's just coming on at the Barbican in London. Yeah. Apparently, it broke the record for tickets sold in one day, beating Benedict Cumberbatch's Hamlet. 
Oh, brilliant. That's not bad going because he was good in that apparently as well. You you, you mentioned the the, um, the museum which you've been to, of which I will be internally jealous until hopefully one day I get to go there. And I, I've heard that there is a 13 minute sequel called May and the Kitten Bus, also written and directed by Miyazaki, and you can only see it there. Yes, and I can't no remember details tragically, but I did see it, yes. Yeah. Yeah, which is wonderful. You mentioned the Barbican from about the show that I was talking yeah. about. Um, I did used to work at the Barbican for a while. Yeah. And when I was there, they had a Ghibli season came on. So Jonathan Ross, I can't remember. I think he might have already just started doing the film programme for BBC at this stage. Yeah, he was very, he loved watching it with his kids, didn't he? This is years ago. Yeah, he Him was and already J- a fan. His wife, Jane Goldman. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And he was selling, he was selling the notion of it big time. It was a hugely popular festival of films. Working there as I did, I was able to get uh, tickets secured and to go in there. Um, yeah, I paid tickets, but I had to pay, but I could at least go and watch them all. And I discovered all of these films on the big screen, which I was really delighted to have done. So I yeah. watched Princess Mononoke, I think was the first one I saw. Oh no, maybe Totoro and then Princess Mononoke. Yeah. I saw Grave of the Fireflies and um, Spirited Away wasn't released at this point, but the... Um, all of the other classics, Castle in the Sky. Um, yeah, this uh, was late 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, Nausicaa, Porco Rosso, um, and I think one, there may have been one other one as well, which I saw at the time, um, which um, were, were all great. Just seeing them all on the big screen was wonderful, and some of them with introductions as well, or some kind of, you know, screen talks and bits and pieces. Yeah. Yeah, so great stuff, yeah. So, um, yeah, so Totoro is at number five. Could have been higher. <laughs> So I, I I I love the fact. So when I watched that the, the documentary I was alluding to earlier, where Takahata's working on a film and and Miyazaki's working on a film, and they're both looking at it over their shoulder, you know, in separate locations, looking at what what he's up to and what's he doing, and because they're still very very competitive with each other all the way up to the end. So um, while Miyazaki was making this film, Takahata was making a very different film in Grave of the Fireflies, which um, I can't believe this that actually happened it was a kind of parallel production and then the films were released in 1988 as a double bill yeah um so you've got basically a, a, a beautiful children's fairy tale and a harrowing story a true story of war i <laughs> um it's been called one of the most moving and remarkable double bills in cinema history and you can't really disagree with that can you? that is some double bill i have to say and we'll i don't know if it'll be in the top fives or not we'll, we'll come to that later but we'll certainly talk about grave of the fireflies regardless but that is some film in terms of um the subject matter it's very the, the animation is quite different to anything else um the storyline's different to pretty much anything else yes they've got they've done um and it is very harrowing and i don't know which version or versions you might have seen but it appears i've, I've watched my dvd copy of it um oh, so they're all all of them are on net, all of these films are on netflix now so um i have dvd copies yes. so it's I just easy just to turn my tv on and press the netflix i don't button. think grave of the fireflies is for some reason it wasn't when i checked it earlier oh, okay I, I have it on dvd and i hadn't actually watched yeah, my yeah. dvd copy before and i noticed that, that it's actually cut it's been edited oh, um, okay and my wife verified this in fact she pointed it out before i noticed it um that it's it's topped and tailed with um some harrowing stuff and the end bit of that has been cut out. We'll go into more detail later yeah, 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 about yeah. the film anyway. But um, it's interesting that it's so harrowing. That's a film that people deemed needed editing for a DVD release over here at one point, which, um, okay, well, we'll go into that more later anyway. It's, it's a strange one because they have a real uh, principle of um, no cuts. Um, mm. I think when they made Nausicaa, 
um, I think it was cut quite quite severely for, for an American audience, oh, okay. and, and so um, they kind of brought in this um, the idea that, that yeah, I think uh, when they were making when they made Princess Mononoke, um, mm. I think. Um, Harvey Weinstein suggested a number of cuts in it to make it more palatable for a Western audience. Hmm. He suggested a number of cuts to be put in and he received in the post a Japanese sword with the phrase, (laughs) no cuts. And that was it. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard they have a very strict on their no edits policy. Yeah. That's that's quite a strange thing, strange thing to hear. Yeah. Yeah. But there we have it. Okay. So the last thing I'll say on, on, on uh, My Neighbour Totoro is um, going into this film, Miyazaki, he wanted to make a film that entertained but stayed with the viewer after watching it. Yeah. Um, and and I think he based uh, the character May on his niece. And yeah. he certainly, you know, succeeded in what he set out to do. Definitely. Yeah. I'd, I'd say also, I mean, the, 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 I mentioned the iconic, the Totoros, the big, the medium and the small ones. But there's also these these black, um, I think they're called soot well, the soot balls or whatever they are they're, yeah, they're in yeah. spirited away as well who kind of just yeah in the shadows and scatter away when you yeah and if you've got the um say the they're sort of transparent the um the other ones the the, the ones that um the little girl finds first of all walking across the grass it sort of like notices her and kind of just trundles along a bit quicker and it's it thinks it's more transparent than it is uh, it's trying to be um, incognito, and then suddenly um, realizes it's half transparent and it's been seen, and that's how the whole yeah. chase goes on. So it's quite they're quite endearing. You get all these quirky little characters, these fictional, yeah. invented characters throughout Ghibli stuff, particularly, oh, yeah. the, particularly yeah. the Miyazaki mm. stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's a great film, and uh, much like Ponyo, that would also be quite a good entry point into Ghibli if you want to sit down with the Absolutely. kids. Absolutely. In fact, I'd go as far as saying that should be the entry point because it's it's the it's the flagship one, and and, and as you said, that's their. Yeah, logo. it doesn't really have a story, but you'll mm-hmm. be drawn into that world, and you'll yeah. you'll want to stay there. Yeah. All right, Phil. Right, so, moving on yeah. um, to my number four. Uh, we're, mo- we're going to, as I mentioned it earlier, 1997 and Princess Mononoke. That's my number four as well. <laughs> right, Fantastic. Four, right? Cool. <laughs> so, um, I mean, there's a lot going on in this film. <laughs> so, um, on a journey to find the cure for a curse, um, Ashitaka, um, a kind of, I'm presuming he's an adolescent boy, um, he finds himself in the middle of a war between the forest gods and Tatara, which is a mining colony. Um, another, this was a critical commercial blocks off, uh, blockbuster. It broke um, Japan's box office record at the time before I think Spirited Away broke it again a few years later. Um, it's set in the late Muromachi period of Japan, which I'm reliably informed is 1336 to 1573 although it's not quite really there it's i think miyazaki has kind of said it's sort of put it's not an accurate history um but it kind of it's looking to kind of the the, the period where there's got conflict begins between nature and uh, industry um so but yeah I, I mean i don't want to go heavy on the story because we could talk about this film for a really long time but yeah boy gets possessed gets his, his arm gets possessed he goes looking for a cure he comes across a, a, a city and it's sort of uh, 
out in the forest and he meets various various characters there and they're at war with the forest and also uh, <laughs> so yeah so much going on yeah it, it's he, fantastic film this this film um again japanese are very big on spirit spirit ideas and kind of um this whole notion of gods that for them gods are of each category so in this one you've got this um this this crazed boar god a wild boar yeah. god who he comes across and and is the one that um because of his rage he's got this kind of worm-like kind of rotting thing going on all around him physically tangibly and if any of that kind of crawls off and touches him and it curls coils around his arm yeah next one of his arms that's that's basically the curse he's got um it's all come out of this spirit god being enraged by what humans are doing it's about this place that's literally called the ironworks um by um lady is it iron town isn't it it's, like a sort of, it's a sort of frontier frontier iron town i think yeah it was based on john Ford westerns from my yeah, reading yeah. and it's got that real kind of feel about it it's really it, populated by outcasts and minorities with, yes that's right and, i mean it's basically the whole town is um lepers and, and prostitutes basically <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Which is, um, bear in mind, we're talking about a, a, what is essentially a kids film here. Yeah, there's <laughs> constant men- mention of brothels and things like that, isn't it? You've you've got again the, the female characters quite often are very strong. A lot of the male characters are buffoons. Either that, or they are quite sharp, but then they're yeah. sinister. And yeah. in this case, it's a mixture of the two. Um, you've got an old monk traipsing about called Jigo, who um, has clearly got ulterior motives. Uh, he wants to take the head of the spirit god, which is the main god of nature, basically, yeah. for a forest spirit. Um, but all of these, you know, there's a, there's a boar god, there's a wolf god. And but, no, but, this is in ancient times, and all of these were giant versions yeah. of, the, of the now animals of the current era. And the notion is that the fable is that um, you had all these gods and they all died out because humans killed off part of nature and just basically killed off their spirits. But at the same time, there's no good or evil with this. It's hmm. life. Life is shown to be a lot more complicated than that when there are arguments for and against all sides. So you can look at any character and say they're the goodie or the baddie based on whatever criteria you want to want to come up with. Um, so, so uh, I mean, both San and Iboshi, the two sort of main female leads, uh, San being the kind of the girl who 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 comes from the forest and Eboshi being the, the the lady who runs the runs the tattler oh, the iron town. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they could both be seen heroes and villains. It's 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 quite an interesting. You're never quite sure who to vote who to root for. And then you've got pure um poor Ashitaka who basically wants to be on everybody's side and everybody to get on. Yeah. You get that a bit with Howl's Moving Castle, yeah. Castle in the Sky, those characters who are not what they first presented to be at the beginning of the story. Yeah, they're much more grey rather than black yeah. and white. And that's great because you've got here you've got films that are for everyone, including younger younger audiences, which have three-dimensional characters um it's two-dimensional film but it's three-dimensional characters and that why not i think it treats the audience with intelligence of all at all ages it's i think people are able to cope with that really you know they they want to have quality stories and they 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 really are good quality characterization if 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 we're putting you off and this film is sounding very very japanese (laughs) it is but it's still you still get involved in the in the storyline and Mm. um believe I, I only realized this recently so the um 
the, the script that kind of that was done for the dub and for the script that comes up was it was actually done by Neil Gaiman who wasn't as famous back then and he is he is now and he simplified believe it or not quite a lot of the Japanese terminology yeah yeah that's it um and in terms of the just going on the storyline a bit more Lady Aboshi who's got the ironworks um she's got um, she's a very interesting character yes she's very strong she's a very very strong strong woman who is looking after as we said prostitutes and lepers I mean we we we'll get into the theme, some more of the themes in a minute but and she's fiercely protective of them yeah but she also has an agenda for the ongoing development of her town which in her mind is is just an honorable objective but yeah. is ultimately damaging the, At the expense of the environment and yeah. so of course um, she's got this completely focused notion that she wants to have the head of the the, the spirit god taken away as well because it might um, allow a, a lack of conflict from there on in and she'll be able to get on with what she's doing yeah. and quite selfish um, looking at the smaller picture perhaps however an interesting strong kind of manipulative character in some senses oh yeah but I think um, also respectful in others yeah uh, you say you know she's got she's got manners she's got um, she's got her own her own notions of what to do here Unfortunately, some of them clash, but then she's capable of understanding different scenarios as the story goes on. Um, so her success it basically depends on her destroying the forest, in so doing, driving out the many nature gods um, who live there. Um, so she and the citizens of the mid-forest town that she's erected, um, which is, by the way, um, called uh, Tataraba, apparently, are... Oh, okay. uh, in the real language, but um, are opposed philosophically by Ashitaka and physically by the nature gods themselves and by Sam, who's this wild girl who's hanging about with the wolf gods, basically. Yeah. Um, but one of whom has adopted her as uh, as a daughter. daughter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the greatest of the forest gods is Shishi, um, which is um, a day yeah. to day. Yeah, takes the form of the mighty an- antlered, sad faced deer, but by night that of a vast, not quite corporeal creature. Um, Iboshi wishes to destroy Shishi because um, he is a, um, well, he is basically an obstacle to progress for this fledgling civilization, and is assisted by crooked lords who seek um, the severed head off Shishi, said to give great um, immort- to grant immortality. Um, and she starts a determined campaign to strip away the forest, destroy the gods, seize the desired head. Um, and as I mentioned, this guy Jigo as well, this monk who's got his own henchmen that hang around. Yeah. And they, they, they go um, incognito in kind of dead animal skins to kind of sidle their way. In yeah, the, yeah. Places, which is quite good. Um, so anyway, that's that's the general story. Slaughtering goes on. Somehow Ashtaka must bring out all of this potential disaster, the least bad resolution. So that with the stories, I find that you don't quite know where it's going to go because you, you don't. Yeah. How could this have a happy ending? Yeah. yeah, you can see the conflict and you can see some scenarios down which the story might go, but you don't quite know which one it's going to be and how that would then lead to the other consequences. Um, yeah. But it works out well. Um, really well written story. Again, I think this is yeah. exactly right. This oh, story. yeah, pretty sure. Um, and I just find it. And it looks beautiful as well. Looks stunning. It has, still has those cute touches, like is it the Kadami, the little spirits that's the yes. little white spirit? Yeah, the spirits yeah, that... their heads and rotate. Yeah, 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 yeah. So they, they got that. Those yeah. are real sort of Ghibli aesthetic. Exactly. Um, so kind of going in on the, on the theme. So I think the central 
theme here is kind of the again again the environment so the, as you say the supernatural forces of destruction unleashed by human humanity's greed consuming natural resources but it also discusses disability um so Miyazaki actually spoke at the International Symposium on Leprosy in Tokyo, saying that he was inspired to portray people living with leprosy, which was said to be an incurable disease caused by bad karma. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> After visiting a, a san sanatorium in Tokyo. Um, and uh, Lady Boshi, she says, compassionate and believes the um, the great forest spirit's blood will cure them. So that she's actually looking to help the disabled people but at the expense of the environment but she also employs sex workers which are another highly stigmatized people um and i think that it also kind of discussed quite a lot of social conformity and where people fit and where they don't fit but you've got iboshi who's leading a very strange society but it is still a society and then you've got san who's just a complete individual it's yeah it's a fascinating clash of cultures and ideas and, and personalities and yeah you could talk about this film for a very very long time i mean it's a good couple of hours long uh, you're thrown in right at the beginning there's no there's no breathing space in it. it's it's basically a sprint all the way through for that there's the pace is pretty relentless it is yeah it is and you've got um we mentioned should mention as well that the the main male character is again a young boy. He's he's riding a red elk. Um, yeah, which is a beautiful, beautifully drawn yeah, cool. character. Yeah. Just just basically is ridden like a horse. It goes flying around, and he's he's good with a bow. This 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 kid, and he's good with a sword. So you get these quite gruesome kind of harks back to to the violent Japanese cinema that you might have seen in live action of kind of heads being chopped off and arms being severed. Oh, yeah. Kind of arrow-headed bows that he's firing. Yeah. Arrow -headed it's very violent in places. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, people are getting decapitated by him as, they, as he fires at them. Yeah. Samurais who are trying to basically get in the way of, of, of what he's trying to do. Um, they're, they're kind of villainous characters. sort of. Like. Yeah, I think what, when they were bringing it out, they were kind of, I think, think Miyazaki had two ideas for a kind of title for the film. Um, Princess Nononoke is what they went with. Um, yeah. Mononoke is not a character. Um, Mononoke is a Japan, I believe, I believe, a Japanese word for the supernatural shape-shifting beings that possess people and cause suffering, disease, and death. So, yeah, lovely thought for for a kids' film. Um, but the, he he wanted, I think, he wanted to go with the story of the legend of Ashitaka. But I think um, Toshio, um, the producer, talked him a bit. They went for the kind of more mysterious Princess Mononoke. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think the um, both those titles are perfectly good um, Mononoke I think they, they allude to it in some regard to do with her at the beginning don't they I think yeah. there was a sort of suggestion that she is that but yeah it's it's um I think it's it's a it's an adventure it's a you know it's an outdoors kind of romp you've got as I said people charging about across the countryside yeah. you've got a number of characters interacting it's got them almost a kind of Kurosawa feel about it Kurosawa feeling about it in places well, it does a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I said not not least the, the fact that it chucks in a few samurais and you've got monk characters and you've got these kind of uh, these sort of these, these different archetypes that keep popping up in the story. Yeah. Um, but it's, I think, um, a densely rich film. It's stunning yeah. and beautiful. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. We haven't really mentioned that yet. It's, again, like all the other films, it's absolutely beautiful to look at. 
Yeah. Um, I think in this case, 10% of the, the film was done using computer animation, but it was designed to kind of blend in with the traditional animation. You can't tell the difference. It all just looks like traditional animation to my uneducated eyes. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I will say as well is if you watch it, I mean, I'd obviously recommend watching any of this stuff in the cinema if you get the chance, but if you are watching it at home, you could just freeze frame any shot and it looks like and it's a, almost like a poster, isn't it? You could, yeah. Yeah, you could frame any individual any, film frame yeah. and it would look stunning. It really is amazing, amazing animation. Um, he really is a master. And, and all of these films really are masterpieces. I think in the same way we mentioned Hitchcock from our very first episode, you know, yeah. the guy's got several masterpieces. I think Miyazaki alone does, uh, let alone with... with um, so it, apparently I read that there were 144,000 cells in this film and Miyazaki personally retouched 80,000 of them <laughs> that's, so he that's, was a busy boy yeah that, I mean that is talk about hands-on doing yeah. it all yourself that's, so uh, yeah again the film was um, released in, in Japan um, as a kind of double bill but this time it was alongside a documentary at Mononoke Heim in the USA which featured Miyazaki visiting Walt Disney Studios and various film festivals I've never seen that it's not something I've been able to track down I'd, I'd love to see it yeah and it's also- quite an interesting character to follow around because he's a bit of a grumpy old man and he makes no apologies and he, he he's deliberately difficult and obstinate but other times he's really kind of sensitive and care, caring and quite yeah. philosophical about a lot he's of much loved by the staff that are working in the office when yeah when you see him in these documentaries as well you can tell there's a an affection for him he works them all very hard i think yeah yeah, yeah. but you have to be you have to be working hard in something like that don't you you really do it's it's something else yeah Okay, right. um, I need to get another beer, I think. Okay, oh blimey, a break time already, is it? Well, we've 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 sailed through the first two, so uh, you've got Ponyo at five. I have my neighbour Totoro, and we both have Princess Mononoke at number four. So we're going to have to take a quick break there, then, Phil, are we? And we'll yeah. be back with our top threes after this short intermission. Time for some uh, ice creams or maybe some popcorn. So, suitably refueled, are we, Mr. Newman? Yeah, I'm on. I'm still on the brew dog, so I'm now on the 5 a.m. Saints American Red Ale. It's pretty good, actually. I've never had one for a brew dog beer like this before. Oh, Apparently, it's a limited edition one. I'm liking this. Yeah, it looks quite red ale-ish. Yeah, makes sense. In fact, it glows more red on, on screens than it does in pubs. <laughs> yeah. Um, on That's because you go to really dark, dingy pubs. <laughs> it's not surprising. True, yeah, Din- dingy establishments, that's me. Yeah. Um, I'm just about to get into a bit of Vocation Special Edition, which is a Sunset Overdrive Pina Colada Sour. Now, I know one one particular friend of mine hates these. Nick, if you're yeah. listening, you're going to love this. I'll, I'll save you one. <laughs> um, anyway. As I mentioned before, I, I love a half pint of sour, and then I'm done, and I don't want to touch another one all evening. But that half, it has to be near the beginning of the evening. And it can only be a half. I can't do more than that. Well, I'm, I'm and doing, then my, my sour kind of, ta- you know, taste buds are, are, are wetted and I'm happy to move on to somewhere else, some, some, something else. Well, I'm doing the best part of the pint later in the evening. I'm not sure how that fits in, but <laughs> I'm, I'm deliberately drinking slowly. I'm only having a couple of drinks this evening. So um, I'm making it last. And I think a sour is a good way of making things last. <laughs> Definitely. Okay. Right. Well, so uh, for my number three, I have gone for My Neighbour Totoro which was your number five. Five, yeah, yes. that's it. So I'm uh-huh. back over to you for number three. 
Yeah, well, you've thrown that one straight back at me, and that's fair enough because I'm ready for it. <laughs> so my number three, um, again, this was uh, toying with the, um, who, what goes where. A very different kind of film. We mentioned it earlier on. It's Grave of the Fireflies. Takahata makes yeah. his bow. Yeah. So this is the story of a young boy and his little sister who are struggling to survive in Japan during World War II, particularly at the end of World War II, um, uh, where, which is where the story is sort of concludes at the beginning, if you see what I mean. He introduces himself at the beginning, yeah. says what's happening to him, and uh, and then the story just tails back from there. So it's a, so it's the story of uh, two yeah. siblings. You've got uh, Seita, um, or Nichan, as, as his little sister calls him. It means big brother, by the way. So Seita's his real name, and Setsuko, which is the uh, the little girl. Um, and these are two young Japanese siblings. They're living in the declining days of World War II when an American firebombing um, separates the two children from their parents, um, the father being in the Navy, the mother yeah. who is in the location, locality, but is um, is on her way over to the school, the local school, and tragically is killed um, via a, a nasty incident of basically severe burns. Uh, so yeah. she's not immediately killed. Um, the elder... Uh, of the two siblings gets to see her, uh, but she's out of it, and then, and then she dies. So they're left orphaned, effectively, and that's pretty early on in the story. So you can see where the harrowing elements come into this. Um, the two siblings then have to rely completely on one another and on themselves, and when they struggle to fight for their very survival, rationing, of course, is in place here. People are trading goods for food. Things are desperate, essentially. And... Uh, it's a story of, yeah, just of survival. It really is very much focused just on these two characters. There are obviously other characters yeah. around on the scene, but it, the, the, the whole focus, the protagonist, unlike a lot of the other Ghibli stuff, is really focused in on these two. And it's about, um, yeah, the, the various ways they're trying to survive. They're taken in by another family at one point who are not particularly sympathetic. Um, eventually they go their own way. And essentially they're getting... And malnourished, um, and yeah. particularly the little girl is. They really, don't know how. To, they're so young. They don't know how to look after themselves, do they? No, not it, probably. They're doing the best, of course. But yeah, actually, the older brother. But essentially, it's a long. It, what, like this a long is long not a film to sit down and watch with your kids, like Ponyo. I defy very few people to kind of come yeah. out of the film not in tears. It's pretty oh, harrowing and pretty tragic. I wonder if this is what age you would introduce this to people, actually. Yeah, that's yeah. an interesting question. I'll it's... be honest, I've only seen this film once, and that was a few years ago, and I haven't, although it's, I greatly respected it as a fantastic piece of work, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I want to sit through it again. I've got to be yeah. perfectly honest. Well, I mean, it's like Schindler in the kind of Schindler's List sort of way. You've seen it and you understand the message, oh. and you get through it, and you don't know if you can put yourself through it again, even though you recognise that it's a fantastic yeah. piece of work. Well, without knowing the exact figures, I would strongly suspect that the number of times I've been brought to tears. Uh, watching a film is probably in single figures. If it's not, then it's probably something like a dozen times. Yeah. And this is one of them. I mentioned it at Barbican. Yeah. I saw it at Barbican. So it's in the cinema. And yeah, just couldn't stop the tears coming with this. It's just so, so hard hitting. Um, and as I said, there's, there's an edit to this, which I'm pretty sure I saw the unedited version in the cinema yeah. um, because I noticed that something looked a bit different at the end. And before I even had a chance to say it, as I said, my wife said, oh, they've edited a bit here. And she thinks they've edited certain scenes during the film as well, which I'm not so clear on what those are. Um, but 
essentially, I, I don't want to go into details on what's been edited, actually, no. even though it'd be quite interesting for people to know if they haven't got to see that version. But essentially, there's a scene at the end which brings you back to the scene at the beginning, which is the end of this boy's story when he's at a station um, and he's basically being looked down on by people who have probably since recovered from the, the worst of matters. Yeah. Uh, looking down on him as this kind of, this, well. Gr- yeah, horrible little urchin. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, as is quoted. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I did watch it again. I only watched it today, in fact. Um, wasn't sure where it was going to sit. I was pretty convinced it would be in the top five. In some ways, it could have missed yeah. out the top five on the anima- The animation. That's what happened for me. It, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because... It's, it, it's almost like a documentary rather than a, than a kind yeah. of piece of escapism cinema. Almost. In, a, in a way, it is. I mean, it's there's, so There's a... A, a, f- a few years after this, another Japanese film came out, which I found very similar, called Nobody Knows, a yes. film about yeah. a mother who abandons her kids. Yeah, that's something. It's a live action, this is in the cartoon, and leaves them to fend for themselves in, in the city. And that's not quite as harrowing, but it's not far off it. Yeah. That that one reduced me to a bit of a blubbering wreck as well. Um, uh, yeah. um, three things to mention it, just stat-wise. It's a 12A certificate, which is interesting. So I'm talking about what age to introduce it to. Maybe yeah. that should be about the right age. And a 12A, it's also another one of the shorter ones. Most of them are about two hours uh, or more. Um, yeah. But Totoro obviously isn't, and, and neither is this. It's an hour 29. And it is another one of the 80s films. It's 1988. Yeah, yeah. This was the one that was... On a double bill with Totoro, yeah. Exactly. Um, the animation's interesting because it's very different. Um, it's Takahata. He's a very different eye and a very, yeah. very different style. Miyazaki's films all look like Miyazaki yeah. films. Yeah. Whereas the Takahata films, he, he tries, he experiments a bit more. And, and so you've yeah. got something like My Neighbours, the Yamadas or the Taylor Princess Kaguya, which have got very different types and styles. Yeah, sort of starched out white background. Yeah, and, yeah. And kind of more, much more water water paints painted kind of uh, yes yeah kind of styles then you've got this film which has got quite quite sort of almost like warm glowy kind of slightly blurred rougey sort of autumnally kind of yeah. colors to some of it in terms of the actual physical look of it um it looks a bit more dated i don't know if that's deliberate with the style at the time or not in terms of you can tell it's an 80s film whereas i don't mm. think totoro necessarily no no totoro is ageless isn't it yeah, yeah. Um, but this one, you, it's very distinctive. It's not like any of his other films, as well as you said, the Kaguya and um, Yamada stuff is one element. Then you've got this, and then you've got other stuff that he's done, which again is, um, again, the, as, 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 as I understand it, um, he, he's the older of the two, and he was very a big influence. Um, Miyazaki, I think, is, is a very, very left wing um, individual, and people have said that he inherited all of his politics from Takahata and you can after watching this film you can kind of you can you can definitely see that well it makes sense yeah absolutely um I've I've heard some I read an interview where someone sort of said if it wasn't for Takahata um, Miyazaki would still only be interested in comic books and Nothing else, you know, yeah. it's his, his, his influence that brought in a lot of these big themes and, and big ideas. And yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, I should mention as well, also, uh, in terms of writers, it wasn't just um, in this one, it was him and also. Uh, I think it's Akayuki Nosaka is the uh, is the novelist who also had some sort of collaboration, I think, on the actual uh, finished product as well. Um I was going to say that in terms of, um, the, yeah, the style is a bit different visually. 
you there are certain i think certain traits that are um you know in in, in keeping with uh, miyazaki stuff as well certain ways of drawing certain things are the same that yeah. might be more of a, a general japanese kind of way of doing things more than more than just in, within studio ghibli but an interesting film definitely the hardest hitting um i think it's a powerful important bit of work yeah. really in cinema history in general uh, as i said it's uh, it's an emotional <laughs> a roller coaster I wouldn't say the story is going all over the place, roller coaster, but in terms of how your emotions are, are set against the story. Um, and it's just about the the cruel fate that's just befallen people. Yeah. Um, obviously, war in general, horrendous, but nobody individually causes them harm. It's more about the, the situation. Yeah. So people are unsympathetic. There's a scene where a farmer catches him stealing some food and... You know, he's, he's got utterly no sympathy. I don't know if you remember the scene. He's yeah, yeah. beating the boy up when he catches him, and then he drags him off to the police with the little baby sister left behind. And we, we find out she's actually followed him to the to the police station. But, you know, for all we know, she's yeah. been abandoned on her own in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And, you know, so you've got this element of the, the cruelty of the human race on occasion. Yeah. But, um, a touching film. Um, Very well done. Yeah. And, yeah. If you do... Um, I don't want to say enjoy it if you find that interesting. There was another film, quite a similar film about Hiroshima a couple of years ago, and also an animation called In This Corner of the World, which is worth watching as well. Yes, that's right. Yes, yeah. I think I've seen that actually. I can't remember now. It's been a while. But um, yeah, good stuff as well. So yeah, so you've got, uh, so you've got Totoro at three. I've got Grave of the Fireflies at number three. I'm pretty sure we're going to have the same top two in the same order. <laughs> we might do well i have said that before and been incorrect but yeah, yeah i know and then there's been a curveball and you've realized oh no not at all well we were shortly to find out if there is a difference it might be our number two so that's what i'm gonna guess but um let's see what you've got first of all so i've gone for Howl's moving castle oh no it is a different top two oh, yeah okay interesting I, I could easily this is where i could have had this in i um I liked it more than the missus, actually. She, much as she doesn't mind it at all, she um, she didn't quite like it as much as I did. And I watched it a second time, and I think I think I enjoyed it more the second time than I did the first time. So I definitely haven't lost any of my interest in it. Um, it's a great film, a stunning animation, oh, yeah. brilliant score. By the way, the scores in these films, yeah, Princess yeah. Mononoke, um, I think is an outstanding score. It's one of the great scores of the modern era. I think it's that good. Yeah. But this film, House Moving Castle, has stunning animation, brilliant score, some of the usual motifs, such as the granny character, albeit this time as such um, virus spell, we should say. Yeah. Um, she's, one, she's the central protagonist. Uh, it's got magic. It's got the, the notion of human flight as well. Yeah. We talked about um, aviation, but actually humans being able to fly in some form or other um, in fantastical scenes. It's got odd creatures, in this case, the blob men, um, who are um, the henchmen of yeah. one of the characters, um, including a behatted creature called, um, I think they're called the henchmen of the witches or something like that. Wistful and melancholy romance, prince-like persona, this Europa, Europa land. This is another thing. So like yeah, um, generic Europe. It, so it's based. It's based on the novel by a British author, um, Diana Diana Wynne Jones. Yeah. Um, uh, who and it, I think it was kind of also inspired by Miyazaki visiting Strasbourg's Christmas market, and he just loved <laughs> the whole setting and the vibe. And so he went to the Alsace region of France and studied all the architecture and its surroundings. 
yeah. to kind of get the film setting and he kind of loved it it's another kind of thing about uh, that Miyazaki does is that he gets the landscapes and the settings right a lot of animation not just Japanese but worldwide they create these huge fantasy vistas that just don't look right because they're just weird you know or completely unbelievable he studies you know certain places I think um and 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 bases the look of a film on a certain area so we've spoken about that with Ponyo um, when he went and visited stayed in, in by the sea uh the same for uh Totoro yeah um so so how's Mimi Castle yeah he, he that whole kind of European um mm. kind so of think- look it's called Kingsbury, isn't it? One of the places, which sounds very yeah. Indian. But I, it, yeah. I was interested. You said about um, you said it was Vienna. You said it was Vienna, Vienna or Strasbourg. Or Strasbourg, yeah. So but, yeah, this whole kind of northern similar Europe. kind. It's a similar kind of look, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so the story um, when an unconfident young woman called Sophie is cursed with an old bud, uh, an old body by a spiteful witch, her only chance of breaking the spell lies with a self-indulgent yet insecure young wizard, the, the aforementioned Howl of the, the, the title, and his companions in his legged walking castle. Yes, there's a castle. <laughs> and it walks and it's very much a character in its own right and it looks incredible and it's the the, the design of it is uh, i mean i won't even try and explain it that much but it's it, mad it, <laughs> yeah it's it's, it's a turrets and towers and balconies shapes and it bulks out in funny angles and you've got uh, windows bay windows poking out at awkward angles there's a kind of doors right down at the bottom level where people can go in through the the yeah. pantry, I think it is, isn't it? Um, but but it's that, but that is controlled by a series of of uh, dials which change yeah. the location that the door opens you out onto if you're inside the castle. So yeah. uh, it's it's a, it's true... a proper fantasy film. Um, while yeah. I love Princess Mononoke, um, mm. and it's a fantastic film, the, um, I didn't fall in love with the characters as much as I did with yeah. um, my neighbour Totoro and How's Moving Castle, which is why I've got them above. Because, I mean, you, you've got the, the fire in the grate. It's a demon called Calcifer. Um, yes. And that's just a character in its own right who's you know fascinating and interesting. And you, you really do love and sometimes hate these characters. And, and you really kind of fall for them. It's, um, he's adapting, obviously, somebody else's work. I'm led to believe it's very, very different from the book, which has a much larger cast of characters. But um, uh, Jones met Miyazaki and was given a private viewing and said it was fantastic. So it was definitely made with her blessing. Yeah. Um, and it's, this is also Miyazaki's favourite film of his own work. He said, that he, you know, he said he wanted to convey the message that life is worth living and that this film kind of did everything that he wanted it to. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't realise he, he claimed it as his favourite. And curiously, Porco Rosso, which we might talk about later, is it is a film he thinks is self-indulgent and not very good. I really like it as a film. I think it's, it's another it, film that doesn't really have a story. It has a situation yeah, that you possibly. kind of follow, and you just lose yeah. yourself in the characters and the visuals. Yeah, and then and then it kind of it's an hour and a half, of, and then it finishes, and you think, oh, I love that, but I can't remember much about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But he, I mean, with with the, these animations, particularly with Miyazaki stuff. Um, you get uh, characters who are it's uh, stories that are set in Japan and you get stories which are set in some other 
alternate yeah. place. We don't either don't know it's not specified or it's something like this, which you can tell is Northern Europe somewhere. Yeah. It's got this regal kind of royalty and these grand sweeping artistic buildings. And, yeah. That sort of thing. And then oh, this looks beautiful. I'm, I've never seen this on the big screen. I wish I had. Oh, I did. I yeah. saw it on the big screen. Yeah, and I loved it. I thought it was great. The whole, the whole notion of the, the moving castle is brilliant. It's just walking along on these legs, and it's um, yeah, it's visually ingenious. Yeah, it's really is a character unto itself. You've also got the bouncing scarecrow thing, haven't you, on the stick, which is great. Yeah, and again, is somebody who seems to have been enchanted uh, with a curse, and you just think. Well, oh. there's a lot, a lot of these films. There are a lot of these little touches that that you know that you just yeah. fall in love with. Yeah. Um, so this again this has got the big themes in it um pacifism in this case um this is strongly and um anti-war so as i mentioned uh, miyazaki is very left-wing and anti-war he states that japan should apologize for the damage done uh, their military did to china he also and also to korea for the comfort women in world war ii and for that he's been labeled a traitor and anti-japanese mm. um i think Jap- I don't. I don't want to be. I don't. I mean, I'm quite ignorant of this, but I, I'm led to believe that Japan in, hasn't apologised a great deal for quite a lot of what it has done in the past. So much it's as some European countries have begun to. Yeah, and my wife certainly is in the Miyazaki camp on this one. She thinks yeah. their history is something to be ashamed of. Pretty much the same as a lot of our. our yeah. Own. Yeah, no, no, I don't disagree. You have a lot um, in common with the Japanese. So, we are yeah. island nations that don't think we're part of the continent that we're in, and yeah. we have um, we have, have a difficulty with emotions in public, and we have um, an arrogance about us in a similar way. Yeah, I can't, I cannot yeah. disagree anyway, with that. On, on, so, yeah, um, Miyazaki was particularly angry about the 2003 invasion of Iraq and the Iraq War, um, and that kind of drove quite a lot of this film. The war. Um, this is based on obviously the book, but the war is, is only a small part of the book, whereas it becomes a lot bigger part of the film. He thoroughly expected this film to fail in the US. <laughs> um, it's another film, we mentioned this earlier, there are no clear-cut villains or heroes, really. The characters are all kind of complex, and but they're also capable of change. Um, there's a lot of, as you mentioned earlier, the flying. He, he loves that, despite the evils of technology and disconnection from nature. Um, but another thing that he brings in here is that it's kind of the positive light of growing old. So Sophie, she's made an old woman, which is a, obviously a horrendous thing to happen to a, a young girl. But she sees positives in it. She says she can speak her own mind and she's uh, she can do what actually how she wants without fear of kind of repercussion. Um so she's I mean, one of many strong female protagonists in his work. Um, I, I don't know about if I go too far and say he's immensely feminist, but there is an aspect to it of his work that, that kind of undercuts it. I mean, she's the person that rescues the men and ends the war. And she always puts other people ahead of her own self-interest. So, you know, she's a very uh, admirable character. Yeah. On top of that as well, I'd say, in terms of the motifs, first of all, with the um, Sophie character who's turned into this granny, um, that's that's interesting. She's turned into that by the Witch of the Waste, who's this, yeah. again, this figure who turns up early in the story, this enormous-looking woman, but that doesn't look real. It looks like there's some sort of mask or disguise going on. She's got this odd face that kind of wobbles at an angle, and you think, why is this? It's got something not quite right. And she's And she's got these odd characters um, that come into life who are obviously yeah. just figures that she commands. 
a bit like Fantasia or something. They just they just walk along, carrying her along in one of those uh, those old fashioned um, hand carried carriages. Um, and you think, oh, she's going to be this sinister character who's going to be the, the main villain throughout the piece. But actually, yet again, the, the characters aren't as simple as that. She does have sinister elements to her, but it turns out there's more to her than that. And yeah. there's a scene where they go to visit the Royal Palace, uh, which is quite an amusing yeah. scene as well. Yeah, um, it's so fascinating. And, and it's the first time they've seen yeah. each other since the curse was made. Oh, it's you. How are you enjoying being a granny type of conversation? And then they're walking up the steps, and the the the, the king or the, um, whoever it is, the prince, has, has made them um, walk up this enormous flight of stairs. Yeah, struggling. It's, it's, it's clearly a lot older than uh, yeah she seemed to be from the visage that she presented. And there's there's a whole scene around that. And then it turns out there's another character who's involved in the, this whole thing in the royal court who might be a sinister character, but then she's got a bit more to her than meets the eye. It's, it's interesting. There's yeah. disguises going on, all sorts of other bits, very magical elements to it. The other thing, which again is a recurring theme, and it kind of, kind of ties in Porco Rosso, that I know you mentioned war, but this whole notion of um, a nation in apparent turmoil, they throw that in as a general yeah. thing. You don't get the details. Um, in this one, I think they said something about um, there's, you know, it's it, it times of war. In Porco Rosso, um, they refer to a depression, just it's like a throwaway line. Oh, it's depression times. Yeah. Times are bad. That was set in kind of 1930s fascist Italy, isn't it? Yeah. 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 And there's lots of things in Porco Rosso that they refer to that you yeah. don't actually um, find out much more about. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Past and stuff yeah, like exactly. That. How, how he became a pig in the first place. He's turned into a pig. He's the last of a load of, of airmen, but he's been turned into a pig for some reason. And there's no explanation for that whatsoever. Yeah. And there's yeah. not really a great deal said of that in spirited away, is it, with the two parents at the beginning turned into pigs, other than the general metaphor of they, they're greedily eating food and they turn into pigs. But that seems like not something that would actually happen unless someone's... Well, that, 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 that's another one of his themes of, of um, kind of um, Western capitalism and consumerism. Yeah. And because yeah. they, they turn, well, perhaps we'll talk about this later, but they turn up in an Audi and they're wearing European clothes and they talk exactly. about cash and credit cards and they see yeah. food and they exactly. eat it all. And then they turn into pigs and they can't turn back again. In, in an area where it's set against a traditional old-fashioned yeah. town backdrop uh, yeah yeah um the other the other themes on, on this film though it's how um i mentioned earlier the sort of steampunk vibe i think that's definitely at play here Pseud- yeah. some of the visuals in this are, are, are incredible yeah I mean, really stunning animation it's got these pseudo industrial puffing machines for travel and again you've got yeah. these engineers who seem to be buried somewhere in in all the workings with their bushy moustaches or beards yeah kind of don't seem to have eyeballs. You never see them kind of like engaging with people. Um, I've noted, I put down a note actually about the castle. I, I knew there was a, a way I was going to describe it. I put down, as I was watching it, gigantic wobbling metallic bagpipe. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> well, yeah, it quite sums it up actually, isn't it? <laughs> um, but anyway, that's, uh, that's that. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I love this film. Um, the only thing that stops between this and being number one, I think the last sort of half an hour, it loses its way a little bit. It doesn't quite give you the satisfying ending that you wanted. The first hour and a half of this are up there with anything else Ghibli have ever done. But it is, don't let that put you off. It is a fantastic piece of work. You will love the characters. You will love the visuals. You'll get drawn into the story. Yeah. And you, there's not many other films like this out there. 
I agree with all of that completely. It's slightly long and, and whatever, but it, it's, it is actually really engaging. And I think also what I'd like is the endings. Um, but they always come up with some good endings to their films, yeah. not always just the, an out-and-out happy ending. A good yeah. conclusion, but not necessarily the two main characters go off. No, and, the, and they live happily ever after. They quite often don't. It's like they'll part and, well, you know, we've done this and this together, but now see you later. I might see you around. Yeah. Kind of almost like that, isn't it? I yeah. can't remember exactly how this ends now. I did see it again, but I've gone blank. Yeah. Anyway, there we have it. We don't want to give any way spoilers anyway. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So that is your number, number two. two. Right, so I, Howl's Moving Castle was one of the ones that nearly made my top five, and it didn't make it. Um, Porco Rosso was another one. I'll, I'll talk about that later, maybe. Um, one that I was sure was going to be in the top five, but has ended up higher in the top five than I expected after my, I think, only my second viewing of it. I didn't realise I'd only seen it once before. And it's a film we mentioned earlier. It's Castle in the Sky. I oh, think it's a wonderful. Re- that's re- their, fir- their first Ghibli film. Yeah. Yeah, first first Ghibli film. It's Again, um, and then for me, that was a tie-up yeah. between Ponyo and that for number for number five and number six in another yeah. day. Castle, I mean, Castle, the Pewter Castle in the Sky is, yeah, it's a, it's another Miyazaki fantasy film and it shares a lot of DNA with um, yeah. Moving Castle. Yeah, it does. It, it's, it's a terrific film. It's got so much detail in there. You've got the rip-roaring yarn adventure stuff. You've got these ambiguous characters that turn up. And I mentioned this, this younger than the usual age, grand, craggy granny character who's the leader of a, a gang of yes. airborne, airborne pirates, basically. You're yeah. going around trying to nick treasure. Then you've got this place called Laputa, which is... Um, Fabled flying city, yeah. City in the clouds, which um, it turns out does exist. And somebody, the main character, the main male character called Pazu, uh, his father had apparently spotted it and photographed it once before. Um, and it turns out that the main female lead um, is... Uh, is it Sheeta? I can't remember now. I think it's Sheeta, her name. Um, she, um, she's got a picture of this as well on the wall. So it's yeah. this intriguing storyline, but actually it turns out... Uh, no, sorry, he's got the picture on the wall, hasn't he? She sees it and realises this is her... something to do with her family. She's got some some connection to this area. Um, and it appears that there's these other figures who are, who are hanging around, working through the military to try and discover this location as well. Yeah. I'm not sure what their motives are. Certain factions within that operation don't seem and to they be... they are very much the buffoons that you've alluded to, the male exactly. characters. Yeah. To there's, there's other figures who seem to be a bit more calculated. As I said, the male figures who are not buffoons, but they're sinister. And you're not quite sure what their motives are or, or how cleverly uh, they're going to impose themselves into this storyline. So you've got that going on. So you've got um, what happens quite a lot, which is you've got three or four different sets of people all acting on their own regards and clashing in certain ways with each other. There's some terrific scenes going on about this industrialised Euro, yeah. unspecified I Euro. Mean, it, yeah, I mean, this film is 1986. It's not new, but it, it could easily have been made yesterday. Oh, it's one of the reasons it. I propelled it to number two, because it looks absolutely stunning. It's got these brilliantly exaggerated sort of it's got, elevated rail tracks which are like hundreds of meters up in the air and there's these chase scenes you've got that yeah I mean, there's a lot of act i mean outside of princess mononoke mm. this there's a lot of action i mean there's a lot not a huge great action set pieces 
genuinely in many Ghibli films, Princess Mononoke excluded. But this, this, this is, one has it. Yeah. This is action packed. You've, so got, you've got that you whole know, thing of air pirates and armies and yep. yeah. With tanks and um, and these kind of these warship type of things flying through the air, and you've got chase sequences on these high high level um, railway lines where everything's yeah. tumbling as they're going along it. You know the usual kind of dramatic hair raising moments. Yeah. And it's um, another one that is, it drops you right, like a lot of the films, it drops you right in the beginning. First scene, you're yeah. in, you're, you're. It's almost like you're coming oh. in halfway through, and it's straight, straight, in, straight into the action. And again, yeah, another thing they use that quite often the characters are orphans or they're estranged from their parents or something like that and you've got here you've got two orphans essentially both the female and the yeah. males are um to describe the story it's pazu is the boy um shita yeah shita is the girl yeah so so pazu is a gutsy young orphan from a mining village um and then miyazaki conducted a research trip to wales by the way for this in order to make the social think, physical you know, background interesting but i think there's also i think Laputa, I think it's one of the places from Gulliver's Travels, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's one of the places. Uh, yeah, it, it's in the story. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, to get the social and physical background, he went to Wales um, and the situation at the time there he, he observed with interest. This is with Margaret Thatcher willfully destroying the mining industry. So yeah. that's an interesting backdrop. It ended up affecting his plot in numerous ways. So Sheeta, she is likewise an orphan, but reared in a distant pastoral valley. Unknown to her, she is the heir to the throne of Laputa, now regarded by the general populace as mythical, but in fact still aloft among the crowds, the last of many flying islands that one that tyrannically dominated an earthbound nations. She possesses an amulet, uh, which is at the centre of the story, um, whose meaning she does not understand, but which she was told by her mother always to wear, and this has been passed down through generations in the family. This amulet proves its worth when she, having been kidnapped by government forces led by the sinister Mushka, um, who proves also to have a claim to the Laputan throne and hence to be double-crossing his masters, um, when she falls from an aircraft in which she is being escorted and after a long and sickening plummet is gently, literally, into Pazu's arms, um, uh, which is basically because the amulets allow yeah. her to float to safety. She floats um, down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's so it works, the works only with her. He's, he's in the mine, isn't he? And he kind of catches her, yeah. yeah. And there's a comedy scene which you could see coming where the yeah. amulet is, is, is a glow because it works with her only. Yeah. And other Laputans. And she comes down just to where his arms are and then it, it realises that she's got some company so it turns itself off and then there's yeah. a he almost drops he almost her, drops her yeah. <laughs> which you can see coming but it's still funny yeah. um, but as the two young people compare notes he tells that his father a brave aeronaut once saw Laputa during a storm but that everyone save for Pazu assumed that he was a liar or a delusionless um, however the two adolescents are very soon being hunted not only by Mushka's thugs but also by the gang of aerial pirates led by Mardola. Um, Mushka, as rival heir, is eager to attain the, and abuse the global power that possession of the aerial fortress and its super weapons would give him. The Dolas are merely keen to get their hands on the treasures, um, still assumed to exist on Laputa. Mushka wins the race to capture Sheeta and the amulet. Pazu allies himself with the pirates to rescue the girl. So it turns out that the pirates are a bit more a bit more um, sympathetic than they might have felt. No, he said people, like in his films, people are capable of change and the goodies yeah. and the baddies aren't necessarily yeah. goodies or baddies. Exactly. And the action then propels itself onto the island yeah. and there's these interesting ancient... Which looks incredible with these oh, big robots. Like, it's amazing. The, the, yeah, yeah, these ageing robots. Clouded, yeah. kind of tree-topped 
castle with loads of turrets and all the other stuff, and then some guys floating in the sky, floating yeah. in the sky with these um these robots who come to life when they interact with the crystal that she's got yeah. and other crystals. And it turns out there's a whole army of them hidden somewhere or other. And there's there's a bit of a facade to the to the castle. So you've got all these extra multiple bits of detail in the story, which is brilliant. And um, the um, yeah, it, it just I, I don't think it wastes a minute. It's about two hours long, I think. It is. It's um, pretty much bang on two hours, I think. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it. It feels like no, it. no, no. It flies along. Yeah, and we won't go on about the rest of the story, but it's it's an interesting story, really. Um, and. Again, it's a metaphors about the machineries of war, about um, progress. It, it, it suggests that the yeah. the after effects of technology yeah. and what happens when it's well, left behind. Exactly. Yeah. It suggests that the Laputins were this scientifically advanced early um, early kind of um, species of man or equivalent of man, who um, in fact maybe not, maybe from more galactic. Ground, yeah. uh, it's implied at the end, but um, they're uh, essentially they've they've died out for some reason, uh, not quite made clear. But it seems to be that they've just overextended themselves with greed or whatever else might have happened. And um, yeah, it's I think it's a film with loads of good, loads and loads of good touches. Again, it's stunning. Again, if you freeze frame any any single frame in this film, and you, you and it's all have, hand draw. Yeah, it's all hand drawn, and there's some great humour in this. I laughed out loud on a number of occasions. Yeah. Particularly a scene where there's a an explosive set off um, when the pirates have been captured, and she's the, the Mardolans in the middle of them, and um, something happens. I won't say what it is, but it's it's, it's really funny, <laughs> and that's when you uh, you start to think well, you're in the hands of a master here. It's truly magnificent film. Yeah. I would have had it in my top five, but it, my in my mind's eye before I went back over all these films, I was thinking it'll probably be about number five, maybe a number four at a push, but. I'll put it in at number two. I couldn't resist it. Yeah. yeah. On any other day, it would be in my top five. Yeah. Which which means we both got the same number one, haven't we? Well, Let's if it's not, if either of us have got this missing from our top five, <laughs> it's the greatest crime. So, <laughs> so the number one, and pretty much everybody's number one, let's not mess about. This is where they really, really hit their peak in 2001 with... The fantastic, the wonderful, the gorgeous, the incredible uh, Spirited Away. Yeah. I can just say I ran out of time a little bit, so I didn't get to watch it in this run of um, times that I watch films, but I have seen it relatively recently. I didn't feel like I needed to watch it again. because I, I didn't, it. but I did anyway. Because my yeah, wife was like, oh, if you're watching Ghibli films again, I watch Spirited Away. It's like, okay, cool. Any <laughs> excuse? Yeah. It, it is a, a work of art in so many ways. It's It's got all of the elements that all of the best of the Ghibli films have. By the way, yeah. Castle in the Sky has a brilliant soundtrack as well. Um, yeah. But, th- but this, is, this has got a brilliant soundtrack. It's got a... Joe Hisaishi again, yeah. Uh, yeah, as, as usual, indeed. Thumbs up I mean, to The him. Japanese ph- Philharmonic, I think it's normally that he has. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Again, a brilliant score, brilliant characterisation, Amazing amount of detail in this film as well. Yeah. It's really densely packed, isn't this it? This is a bit like Princess Mononoke, but with kind of with bells the war them. taken out and more yeah. weirdness yeah. put in. Yeah. Again, yeah. It's, it's another one set back in Japan this time. Um, as you mentioned earlier, the two parents come along in their westernised sensibilities. Yeah. Um, and the curiosity is they go off the beaten track. They find this seemingly abandoned traditional Japanese <laughs> town or village. 
um, which has a load of very nice smelling cooking that they're drawn to as they as they walk yeah. through some of the remnants of the town. And th- th- this feast is apparently just being made. It's still cooking as, as they get there uh, on its own. No one's around, so they tuck in uh, pretty, um, yeah. assumed, uh, yeah, presumptively. And then, and then their daughter, the uh, 10-year-old Chihiro, um, yeah, watches her t- turn into, uh, into pigs. Yep. Um, and then she kind of finds out, well, starts looking into what's actually really going on there. Um, yeah. and quite a lot is going on. So, um, as, as, as I understand it, so Miyazaki, um, had his summer holidays in the, in a mountain cabin with his family in and, um, five girls who were friends of the family and he wanted to make a film for those friends. He, he made films for small children like Totoro and for teenagers. But he'd not made a film for 10 year old girls and he really wanted to give them a, a heroine to look up to. Um, and uh, I think around, sort of around the similar time, he visited the bathhouse, uh, a kind of Japanese tradition that you'll know more about than I will. Um, oh, and it's he, a big deal in Japan. Massive. Yeah, he, he was, and he, he, there's one in his hometown and he saw a door next to kind of one of the bathtubs and thought, I wonder what happens behind that door, you know, and then started thinking about it. And I think that the story sort of built itself up from there. And yeah. yeah. So in this story, I mean, we don't want to give too much away, but Chihiro, yeah, she it's finds out of the story. She, right? she yeah, obviously finds herself in a world populated with, um, well, a lot of sort of Japanese folklore characters, really, isn't it? Um, there are kami, the kami that, that we, we mentioned with my neighbor Totoro. They, they visit the, the aforementioned bathhouse to bathe. Um, and she, um, gets a job working there to help out and while kind of trying to find out what she can do to save her parents. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, by the way, but there's this... a lot more going on on top of that. Yeah, exactly. It's got so many ideas, this film. It's it's wonderful. It's so so. I think the, the the only word you can say that really describes it, if you had to do it in one word, is imaginative. It's so yeah. imaginative. You've got a series of quirky characters who are not quite real. That again, it's a typical motif of uh, Miyazaki and of um, Studio Ghibli. You've got those ancient runes set against grassland in the side. You kind of see those sort of things, don't you? You've got the sense of the past as these characters walk through s- semi-rural yeah. side space. Then you get into the, so when you're in the actual the the village itself or the, this big house which is this old traditional house which is based on a real house which has turned into a massive tourist attraction so i i, I i've re- i've read that um, a lot of the buildings in the spirit world were based on there's a um uh, an, an edo tokyo open-air architectural museum uh, in yep. tokyo and he went around there and stole a lot of the buildings from that mm. Yeah, so it's, it's very Japanese, very traditional. You've got these. It's very Japanese, but not impenetrative. impenetrative no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> you, you, you still go with it and you still understand it. You, you, you don't get lost in it. Yeah. You've got the quirky young, heroic looking young lad character. You've got the craggy granny, mysterious, ambiguous character. You've got these odd kind of toad like characters and um, other kind of creatures or semi human figures. You've got this incredible no no name guy, haven't you? This um, yeah, no name who, who just who just sort of follows her around, and he yeah, kind he of kind of takes on the characteristics of whoever he's yeah. You know. 
and he seems to be oh, able. I don't, to want, see, I don't want to give any spoilers. He seems, yeah. seems to be able to see things that no one else can see as well. So there's a fantastic scene when she's going into the house. She crosses the bridge, and he says, "You've got to hold your breath, otherwise they'll, these creatures will see you." And so yeah. she's holding her breath successfully, gets almost all the way across, and this toad-like character bounces up and says, "Oh, hello to the to the boy that she's right, yeah. and she can't help gasping." And then they'll go, "Ah, there's a human," and everyone panics. But when she'd been walking across the bridge before that. This no-name figure, this kind of cloaked, masked, white, got a white mask with a black coat. No face, isn't it? I think yeah. no face. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he, um, he seems to see her. Doesn't say anything or do anything other than just glance at her very meaningfully, and then carries on. And then he, he becomes a recurring theme in this. He seems to represent greed in some way, doesn't he? Yeah. He seems to grow and turn into this oversized figure. There's an oversized baby in this, by the way, as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's quite creepy. Quite mad. Yeah. Um. Incredibly imaginative, incredibly detailed. Yeah, um, um, I, I, I read that the original script for this was three hours long. Um, yeah. And they kind of had to get rid of a lot of scenes and a lot of the eye candy from it to get it down to them. It's still over two hours, but it's manageable level. But you, do, you don't feel it. You're, you are fully immersed in a really bizarre, beautiful and strange world. That sort of gods and witches and, yeah. and strange And things. half the time you've got no idea what's going on, but you kind of yeah. just go with it anyway. It's, um, by the way, it's a PG for anyone wondering about what sort of suitability it is. It was a 2001 film. It, it is a PG, but it is genuinely terrifying in places. So my eldest Freya, I made her watch this when she was much smaller and yeah. she's refused to watch it ever again ever since because yeah. she was so haunted by it. I don't think she liked the idea of her parents turning into pigs among quite a lot of <laughs> other things. That are well, it can, I mean, things can stick with you, and I don't think there's anything wrong with kids being scared. I think uh, yeah. often rampant. I think you do need to be scared. I think there's nothing wrong with that, actually. Oh, with no, your bees, obviously. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I, I've done a look on um, IMDb, and it's 8.6 rated. I think Fireflies is 8.5. I think they're yeah. the two highest rated of the Ghibli films. Which this is, is, uh, this is the, the kind of biggest um, box office and critical smash. It won the Oscar, didn't it? For, yeah, foreign language for film. Best around. animated feature. I animated. Think. So the first, is that the first animated film uh, to win it that was a foreign language film? Yeah, for, I for think America? so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not surprised, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of the themes, we've mentioned sort of Shintoism and Buddhism before. Um, so this is where the kami come to the bathhouse to bathe. Um, um, there's when Chihiro kind of her entrance and she kind of moves for, across the bridge, that, that kind of demarcates her status between sort of child and adult in a kind of coming of age way. Um, there's also, again, something that they met, we saw a lot of in Princess Mononoke is the society and its boundaries and mm. who fits and who doesn't it's strange to see a human who's the person that doesn't fit into society and has to find themselves fitting in you know in this kind of supernatural setting um yeah, yeah uh, it also there's got obviously got the environmental issues um, um in that uh, they have one character come in that they think's a sort of stink demon and it turns out it's a river god that's just been polluted yeah, and the animation for that whole sequence is just incredible. It's just breathtaking, isn't it? Yeah, sound as well on on his later stuff. I think on particularly on Mononoke and Spirited Away, the sound production is brilliant as well. It's absolutely superb, really good kind of effects. Really embellishes the story. And I think in uh, I think in Mononoke and actually in Castle in the Sky, uh, particularly in Mononoke, I, what I really love about those films. Sorry to digress again. Yeah, but there is the use of silence. 
you get these moments, only, only a short period. There's a bit of action, and then there'll be a pause for a few seconds. Maybe there's an aerial shot or a slightly longer shot. Yeah. And there's pure silence for about five or six seconds, followed by one sound effect as something lands in a bush or, yeah. or there's a, a wing flaps open or something, and then and then it's back to normal. And I think that that really is an interesting way of just giving you a breather for a second, but also keeping you curious. Yeah. Slightly anxious. Has the sound gone off on this, you know, on this um in the cinema or on this uh, on this TV screen? What's what's going on? And they go, Oh no, no, it's there. And I love that. I can't remember, as I said, I haven't seen it very recently. Spirited Away may use the same techniques because that's Miyazaki all the way yeah. through. Um but it's I think it's a masterpiece in so many ways. What I think as well is that um it's it's probably I think even though it's a complicated story, it's one of the most accessible of the lot. I think really of the ones with. Long- yeah, I mean you got to you got to go with it. You got to think, well, this is going to be weird. And I'm not going to understand what's going on some yeah. of the time. Um, I'm just going to if you go in there with a dive in there, and I'll go, you know, go with it and, and see how I get on. You, you, you'll love it. Yeah. I, I mean, to me, it's the greatest animated film ever made. I think I think I agree with you. I think so. I can't think of anything I prefer, um, or, or don't think is as is, is, is brilliant as that. It really is stunning. It blew me away when I saw it again. I was lucky enough to see it on release in the cinema. I think it actually came out over here in two thousand and three. But um, anyway, whenever it was, I, I was blown away by it and thought, fantastic, superb, superb film. Um, it's in my top hundred of all time, which is oh, definitely something because that's really. There's so much to choose from, but yeah. as, as po- probably the greatest animated film ever made, you have to put it in there. And if you haven't seen any of this stuff, it, the, I, would, I would recommend watching other things first so you can build up to the peak. I, th- I think, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, as I said, I think you need to kind of work up to this. And, yeah. One one of the things we should mention, Miyazaki um, did write this as well as directing it, but when I say wrote it, he didn't really have any formalised scripts. He's, he's very much, again, we mentioned Hitchcock earlier on, um, Hitchcock worked a lot with, well, he, he adapted books and plays, but he um, he worked a lot with storyboards and he pretty much mapped out yeah. exactly the image he wanted for the story in his head. And Miyazaki did use storyboard formats before going into the full-drawn yeah. animation as well. So despite having a rich plot, in this case, of developed characters, um, again, it wasn't made with a formalised script. Um, and he's, it, there's a quote here actually on... IMDb, IMDb, sorry, which says, I don't have the story finished and ready when we start work on a film. Um, I usually don't have the time. So the story develops when I start drawing storyboards. The production starts very soon thereafter, while the storyboards are still developing. Um, That's what Miyazaki said. He also um, does not know where the plot is going, and he lets it happen organically. He said, it's not me who makes the film. The film makes itself, and I have no choice but to follow, which is interesting. That was an interview with... um, A Midnight Eye, whatever that is, a magazine of some sort. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, some background information there. And it it really is his masterpiece. If you had to say there's one masterpiece, this is it. Yeah, that's it. Where he he does differ from Hitchcock is, I think, you could genuinely not say with 100% clarity what Hitchcock's best film is. I think you can with me as I The rest of his stuff is, is bloody brilliant. This is just this. We we disagreed on uh, Hitchcock best film, but we uh, well, yeah, I haven't really disagreed so much here. Yeah, glad to hear it as well because I would have I would have disowned you and we would have terminated <laughs> the podcast forever. And likewise, have this at number one. <laughs> yeah. So, um, other films that we haven't discussed yet. Yes. Um, yeah, 
1989 Miyazaki film Kiki's Delivery Service, which is yep. also great. It's not quite as deep as the others. It's a good film if you've got daughters to sit down and watch a film about a young witch. It's great fun. It's visually gorgeous, as you would expect. It's great. Um, Porco Rosso, you've mentioned. Um, Pompoco, which is a Takahata film, which is a little bit more surreal and a little bit more strange, but still quite interesting. Um, a film I'd what, never seen before last week, uh, Whisper of the Heart, hmm. 1995, another Miyazaki film. It's a kind of teen high school romance with a fantasy twist. I don't know why I haven't watched that before. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> it was great. Um, yeah. Uh, um, Arietti, um, which came out in 2010, which is basically, if you know the story of The Borrowers, which is a British sort of book and there's been a TV series and a film, it's a kind absolutely. of borrowing of that. That was done by Hiramasa Yonabayashi. Sorry, excuse yes, my Yonabayashi. Again, brilliant. Um, he, he's 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 done it. He did another film called Where Marnie Was There for, for Ghibli, and I think it was him that did that Mary and the Witch's Flower that I mentioned earlier. Um, that's great. My kids absolutely loved it. That one's a bit more like Ponyo, and um, in that it hasn't got so many of the big themes, but it's visually beautiful, and you get swept away in it. Um, and the last few, the last sort of few years, there's been. Not quite so much coming out, really. Um, the last thing that came out was a TV movie, uh, Earwig and the Witch. Um, oh, yes. Uh, which, apparently, which I've not heard very good things about, so I haven't seen it. Oh, I wonder if Disney had more of a hand in that. It's got, it's got like a collaborative. It's computer thing. animation as well. Yeah. It? It's done by, yeah. Wasn't a big fan. Yeah, all of that's it's done good. by Goro Moyazaki. Tales of Earthsea looks great. I think Howl's Moving Castle was in your five, wasn't in mine. I thought it was great. Um, Porco Rosso, I've got a love affair with that film. Yeah. I love that film. It is lacking in some narrative. It does involve a guy who's been turned into a pig at the time of the story. But what I love about it is the cool breeziness of it. He's this cool pig who's got a, a rain mac and a hat and his sunglasses and he smokes and he sits by a little trestle table in a hidden little cove where he's got his airplane, his seaplane, sorry, and um, he's drinking and he's listening to the wine. Yeah. And he goes to a bar where there's chanson music and the, the woman in there knows him and goes, oh, French oh, songs, yeah. the last of the airmen and all this stuff. Um, the woman who sings that, um, the, the, the songs in that, is a really good singer. And she sings in, I think, in French, and she can, and she's Japanese, so she sings in Japanese okay. at one point in, I think, the closing scene to that film. Um, and she's very good, actually, really, really good. Um, so it's got this love affair, you know, with 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 air flights, with aviation, and the whole notion of just just floating through, especially the wind. You get yeah. this, where it's just the wind, and they're floating, but also you get obviously the mechanical stuff. And they're flying down, and he's got this great plane, and he gets double crossed, and then there's there's a joke about all the money he's made, and he keeps throwing money at this repair, and then they, they he has to completely rebuild the plane. Yeah, but all the people that are going to do it are women, and there's this whole yeah. on that again the feminist notion of well women are going to do it, how's that going to work? And of course, yeah. they do a brilliant yeah. job. Um, you've got a buffoonish American aspirational want to be yeah, so a dog fight with yeah yeah. Who, who kind of gets him when he's when he's already got a damaged plane and he gets his revenge and all that sort of thing. Um, 
it's got lots to, lots to speak for itself. I've got an ornament at home. Another thing I got from the uh, museum uh, of Porco Rosso, standing with his you know his Mac and his hat and glasses on on the phone. You know, one of those old fashioned phones where you've got your whole yeah. one to the mouth, another bit to the ear. Um, and he's he's standing there. It's a musical box thing. It's great. It's really cool. Love it. Um, <laughs> that's an iconic scene. That's when he's talking to the shot. Yeah. Who's clearly he's in love with. Um, yeah. Great. I have to send you a WhatsApp picture, by the way. I'll explain. Yeah, I just saw that. Yeah, it's to do with Porco Rosso. I'll explain what that is. So it's an image of two guys there. You'll notice one of them is Telly Savalas. Yeah. Blofeld. Uh, is the guy who does Yeah. Who loves your baby? The other guy is the guy who does the voice of um, Porco Rosso, who does the voice of all of Telly Savalas's films and TV work. Essentially. Oh, okay. In Japan, traditionally, they would do dubbing rather than subtitles, which on the face of it, I would cringe at the notion of. However, they do have people who have remarkably similar voices employed, and they are simply employed. We've spoken about this before, yeah. Always do an individual actor's work. Maybe more than one, but they always do an individual. Nobody will ever do Telly Savalas apart from that guy, for example. He's apparently an iconic figure. He's quite well known. You can see there from the picture I've sent you, he yeah. met Telly Savalas and there's a great, apparently a really emotional thing and they, they got on really well and all that stuff which is great. Who loves your baby yeah, with the uh, with the Kojak stuff, which is very popular, yeah. man, by the way. Um, oh, okay. That's good. But yeah, Porco Rosso, Wistful Romantic, great score again. There's Bogart and David Niven vibes, Rip Roaring yeah. on, motifs of uh, again, of the male figures, the grannies, the screaming and excitable kids causing chaos as well. This is another theme that comes yeah. up a couple of times, uh, which is also in, I think it's, I think that's in Nausicaa as well. I'm not sure. Um, so that's, that's fantastic stuff. Um, what else were we going to say about, um, oh yeah, no, I, I think um, that's pretty much it. There's, I, I think, yeah, Tales of Earthsea is another film as I mentioned. I, yeah, see, I'm quite a big Earth of the Grim. Um, fan I like I love her novels um, I thought that was a bit of a disappointment to be honest I think that was a bit of a missed opportunity that was Miyazaki Sangoro wasn't it that did that yeah yeah, yeah it was way off the they, they only took on part of the story it just it didn't quite work but it's still incredible to watch and I still ha- happily watched it and enjoyed it but it, it doesn't have that kind of yeah world classness that you get you get from yeah, the films yeah. that we've been talking about earlier um the other thing, I think you may have alluded to it already. You definitely mentioned it earlier. Uh, the Tale of the Princess Kaguya, another one of yeah. Tanaka's films. That's quite, it's quite a long film. It's quite long. It, it's quite dry, but it's beautifully rendered and told. You yeah. have to be in the right mood to watch a film like that. Yeah, I watched it yeah. at the cinema with the wife. And same with uh, House Moving Castle. I liked it a lot more than she did. Maybe, again, that was the mood we were in. Yeah, I was in more of a receptive mood for it. I've watched it again, and like Castle in the Sky, I liked it more the second time I saw oh, it. Okay. I think, again, it's got pasted out white and backgrounds. You've got these watercolour style yeah. um, uh, sort of um, hand-drawn painted, very painted. Yeah. It's like a sort of willow pattern plate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very fabulistic. It's a story of a, a princess, Princess Kaguya, as, as her earthbound adopted parents call her um which is basically shining light or shining light princess or something it means um uh which is a, a name given to her by some nobleman who turns up and appoints names to princesses but anyway he she's discovered in the pod of a bamboo stalk which uh, which is his job he's a bamboo guy he just chops down bamboo makes calves and uses them for for his living he's quite an elderly sort of guy uh as he's, they're a couple and they um 
yeah, they find her, they, they take her out and she very rapidly grows. It seems with any kind of impacting moment in her yeah. growing life causes her to suddenly propel in, in age. And she grows up very quickly. She learns stuff very quickly. She's very attentive and knowledgeable and absorbs information. It turns out she's come from the moon is the general concept. Um, but she's, she's here on Earth and you've got this notion of he, he goes back to the bamboo forest and finds these these glowing lights, cuts the bamboo open and there's gold and he cuts stuff and there's, there's lovely clothing for her to wear. Yeah. It's got a very fairy tale yeah. storyline this. And then, then there's other things as well. And he builds a palace for her and there's suitors come trying to, trying to take her hands and they, they're set challenges. And then there's, there's some kind of trickery at work as well. People trying to trick their way into affections. And then it's also doesn't have a, um, Again, you don't have a happy ending in terms of falling into the arms of a one true love or anything, but there is a true love story written into the story. Yeah. But it's wacky, and you get a bit near the end where um, these moon characters all come down with this this really tranquil, almost like Harry Krishna style music going on, and they all just they all come drifting in on a cloud. Yeah. So to greet her, to take her back is what may or may not be happening. We won't spoil the story, but you know, there's a whole notion around that and. The, the elderly couple are kind of quite quite loving, but also quite greedy and selfish and they've almost kind of propelling their own agenda. Um, you don't know how hard I've worked to make you happy when they're not really listening to what she really wants yeah. and that kind of thing, you know. So you've got that, you know, paved with good intention and all that stuff. There's also a bit of a crazy scene where when she's a little girl and she's crying, this quite old lady suddenly whips out a breast and breastfeeds her. I'm thinking, how old is this woman supposed to be? She's <laughs> supposed to be about 70 or something, maybe younger, maybe 60. But I'm thinking, this is a very odd scene. Um, very, very strange. But I love it. I think it's completely off the wall. It's quite it's yeah. got fabulistic qualities, but it's kind of wacky as well. Yeah, there's not, as, a, as like a lot of these films, there's not yeah. many other films like them. Yeah. And that, on that basis, I love Takahata's stuff. I think he's great. Yeah. Um, anything else um, you wanted to mention? So, uh, any other top fives that we've got for this? So, um, yeah. my wife, my wife Camille, she went for Totoro at five, The Pewter Castles in the Sky at four, yeah. Princess Mononoke at three, Owl's Moving Castle at two, and Spirited Away at one. Ah, so she's gone for the same top two as you there. Um, yeah, yeah. I've, she's yeah got four of the same as you again um yep. my uh, eldest daughter freya who's 16 she went for arietti at five kiki's delivery service at four house moving castle at three princess mononoke at two and ponyo at one yeah. bearing in mind she's still terrified of spirited away i'll, I'll talk her around one <laughs> we'll do a revision of this later yeah, yeah. Um, i've already mentioned my wife's got the same five as me she didn't specify an order but that spirited away totoro castle in the sky fireflies and mononoke um as she said, um, as I mentioned earlier, she said, no order of rank. It's a more serious business to avoid them ranking your children in order, she said. Um, John Orchard in um, Sussex uh, has said, not really a top five, but I love Grave of the Fireflies. My neighbour Totoro and Spirited Away. Also a big shout out for Porco Rosso, but I can't remember if it was ever made clear how he was turned into a pig, though. So that kind of... See, I, I've read on Wikipedia the reasoning behind it, but I didn't see any of that in the film, yeah. Hmm. not really no. no it might have been no it might have been something suggested but there's nothing yeah no yeah. mentioned was there and martin in london simply said spirited away for me and 
Addy in London said, Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle. Yubaba still frightens me, he said. Um, he also said that Grave of the Fireflies is on his must-watch list, so he hasn't yet seen it, but he's uh, clearly... Yeah. It's not a Friday or a Saturday night film, but it's possibly a good Sunday night film. Yeah, yeah, which is fair enough, isn't it? It's fair enough. Um, so that's that. I'm just having a look through to see if I had any later correspondence on the same subject. Um, I don't think we had too much, actually, that I haven't already covered. Uh... Ah, yes. Now, earlier on, I mentioned my friend James Smith, who's in Lancaster, and he said that he may not allow me to stay for an upcoming visit. Uh, we've got plans at his place if he doesn't include if we don't include Ponyo. Well, Phil did. I didn't. Um, but anyway, speaking of his own list, James has said we've been discussing our top five Ghibli films. My pick is Princess Kaguya, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away. Ponyo and Kiki's Delivery Service. He says, I don't know what order they should go in, but Bubbling Under is Pompoko and Only Yesterday. Um, also, he went on to say he loves the visual style that's amazing in Kaguya, and he also likes The Cat Returns, and he said that his girls really liked when Mani was there as well. And he then goes on to say, I'm adding Grave of the Fireflies to this list. A good choice indeed, James. Yeah, a really good selection there. If so, if you've not seen yeah. any Studio Ghibli, if you're completely un- unfamiliar with the whole co- the concept of it, the whole notion of it, it is you're, all. You're in for a treat. Yeah, it's it's all available on Netflix. Um, you can get them on disc as well if you wanted to buy a copy. Yeah. Um, Watch the uh, obviously subtitle version, not the American dubbed version. Yeah, can I just say I again? I know the saying about the Japanese doing uh, dubbing, but I really I hate dubbing. I think it takes so much away from films. And with something like Totoro or um, Ponyo, I don't think the pace of dialogues. Well, on Ponyo, you get Liam Neeson to be in the Neptune or whatever. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, watch it in Japanese with English subtitles. They'll be easy enough to follow if you start with Ponyo and Totoro. And then after that, move on to the other stuff. Um, honestly, you, you won't know you're reading them in the end if, you, if no, it's subtitles exactly. are an issue. But, but try those films first, then maybe graduate onto their other early stuff and then work your way towards Mononoke and Castle in the Sky and, um, yeah. and Spirit of the Way. And, and House 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 House. House. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Great. That was great. I love that. Really good, yeah. Now, we're switching tack and we're switching format slightly on the next one. Subject to any changes, we're planning to do next uh, a complete trip back in time for Laurel and Hardy films, aren't we? For oh, yeah. Christmas I've completely special. forgotten about that. I, yes. I used to watch Laurel and Hardy films in, crisp, in, in school holidays, most particularly Christmas holidays. I think it was to do with what was being popped on TV by, by chance at the time. Um, but, yeah, we're going to do Laurel and Hardy. And we'll, we'll probably discuss off air what the format will be because there's a lot of them are very short as well. So yeah. I think anything that's described as a film can probably qualify. We might even subdivide it into two categories. We'll have a look at what's what on there first. Before yeah. We come back with that. How are we going to change the format is we are subject again to confirmation getting a guest in, a friend of mine, Robin Woolley, who is a massive oh. fan of such films. I'm going to look so ignorant. <laughs> Well, right. no, no, it's uh, it's fine. It's fine. It'll be interesting to see, as a seasoned viewer of his films, what he comes up with compared yeah. to me, who was but hasn't seen him for ages, versus you, who it sounds like haven't watched any at all. I watched the cartoon when I was a kid, <laughs> <laughs> but no, no, I'll, I'll, I'll be go, I'll be going in pretty 
pretty yeah i i, I can't recall having really seen have, any have you seen the film about him about them with um uh, the live uh, the live action uh, is that the John C. Riley? Yeah, that one. Yeah, Steve Coogan. Oh, no, yeah, no. that's right. Yeah, Including yeah, yeah, some yeah. shots yeah. in Worthing's Lido. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That's where one of them, one yeah. of them Oliver Hardy, died, didn't he? There, yeah. yeah, yeah. So um that's what we're doing. Subject to any changes, that's what we'll be doing for. Oh, December. great! I look forward to that. That's and then my my Christmas viewing sorted out. Exactly. It feels for me, it'll feel like a Christmassy thing. Because for the next month, it's the World Cup, and I'm not going to be watching a lot of films. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah. Well, there we go. Indeed, um, you'll be well, if you're not at the World Cup, you'll be able to drink at least. Yeah. Um, not use some very late bans on alcohol for the general <laughs> proletariat. Yeah. Yes. Anyway, there, there we have it. And, and then, yeah, in January we will of course do our our year's best stuff. Yes. The, the films of 2022 will be discussed in Jan 23, and um, so that'll be the one afterwards. But um, get your um, Lauren and Hardy heads on ready for the next one, listeners, and send us your opinions on that. Remember, you can follow us Film Fives on Twitter, and I think well, we'll Twitter's still going. Yeah. I'm not sure how much longer it is at the moment. And we do have the Film Fires Facebook page as well, which I don't look at very much either, but I'll, I'll try to when I remember. <laughs> but there we have it. Brilliant. All right, then, Phil. Excellent. Thank you very much. So with that, we'll move on to the next one. Okay. See you next Cheers. time. Cheers. Cheers and cut. <laughs>